A good Thursday morning to you on this July 29th. Jesperson here with Hoyles and Brooks. Hoyles and Brooks. Sounds like a injury law firm. Hoyles and Brooks. Have you been injured in an accident? Do you want to make sure the insurance companies don't walk away? The winners call Hoyles and Brooks today. Save reverb. We got... Eat your words coming up, Sam. We can't use it too many times in one show. Prairie Catering will be chiming in a little bit later on in this broadcast. We've got a great show in store for you. And, of course, this is presented, as you know, by our title sponsors at Bitcoin. Well, we have news. We have breaking news. Bitcoin Wells going public on Friday, everybody. Tomorrow, it's a huge day for the team at Bitcoin Well. Our congratulations to them in advance. I'm not a big stock market guy. I don't know too much about it. I'm not going to comment on it. Never tell people if they should buy or sell stocks. As a matter of fact, my track record would suggest that if you want to do well in the stock market, ask me what you should do and do the exact opposite. Regardless, it's a huge step for the company that is headquartered out of Edmonton with Bitcoin ATMs across the country. You can find them under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. My thanks to the birthday girl for that voiceover. That is the lovely Carrie Ann Skelton. You can read more about what she does at CarrieSkelton.com. We celebrated her yesterday, and uh, today we roll it over. Our little man, Wyatt Rudy, six years old today. So it's a it's a busy 48 hours or so in the Jesperson household. I'm thrilled to be with you here in about 10 minutes' time. In about seven minutes' time, as a matter of fact, we'll be welcoming back author David A. Robertson. Uh, you'll remember David was on a roundtable here on the show, uh, the 2017 Governor General's Literary Award winner, uh, the author of numerous books, including When We Were Alone, a great book for young readers. He recently wrote an opinion piece, Brian Pallister has shattered the relationship between indigenous people and the Manitoba government. You may have read it July 23rd, just coming up on a week ago in the Globe and Mail. Uh, we'll get on and uh, understand a little bit more what he's talking about and uh, why he's honing in on Manitoba's premier. That's coming up in just a bit. We're going to be checking in with the managing editor of Capital Daily. Jimmy Thompson's been doing he and his team great journalism from the Ferry Creek blockades. Uh, we talked yesterday uh, with uh, a representative on, on behalf of Alberta's forestry industry. And he, you remember yesterday there was conversation about, hey, you know, this isn't we're talking about Alberta logging. We're, we're not talking about old growth stuff. We're not talking. This is not the old growth story. This is a totally different conversation. Well, Ferry Creek is. And we're going to check in with Jimmy to see what he's been observing. There's a good chance we're going to talk to a demonstrator as well this morning. We'll find out um, that'll be coming up probably in the next hour or so, the next hour and a bit. If that's going to happen, you never know. Uh, a show like this, a show that is done live. There's a lot of moving parts. We're going to check in with Scott Walker as well. Uh, Scott and I have spoken uh, pretty much once a year for the last seven years or so. He's the organizer organizer of an event uh, Scott lives with uh, bipolar disorder and every year his um, event sees him and supporters scaling up scurrying up scrambling up different mountain peaks to raise awareness for bipolar disorder it's a 24-hour hike and they're going to be taken on tunnel mountain we'll find out why Scott does what he does and uh, of course we're going to be getting to your emails today as well because 
Sarah Hoyles, the editorial producer of this show. A lot of people are talking. This is the big talker this morning about Alberta's response to COVID-19. Uh, I don't know if I say Alberta's response, but but Alberta's moving on. Yesterday, a big announcement from the Alberta government, and it's got a lot of chatter happening, swirling around it. The key points, as you've identified them, what would you say are the main key points that people are talking about today? Well, starting Thursday, so today, close contacts will no longer be notified of exposure uh, by contact tracers. The province will also be ending asymptomatic testing and uh, further measures will be eliminated on August 16th. So people who test positive for the virus will no longer need to isolate. Okay. Let's just let that resonate for a second. People who test positive will not need to isolate. Correct. Am I understanding correctly that that means that in theory, if you test positive for COVID-19, you could still show up go uh, wherever you at want. a playground. Do whatever you want. You could go to a restaurant. You could hang out on a patio. Correct. There would be no limitations. Yeah. Provincial mandatory masking orders lifted. Uh, isolation no longer required, but strongly recommended. If, if we know anything about public health policy, if you strongly recommend something, people will adhere to it. People, people are always going to adhere to strong recommendations. That's that's certainly the case. If, if 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 history, if track record means anything, we know that people will certainly stick to that. Taking- I mean, that ultimately, this is unprecedented. I mean, that, that, that word is so redundant. Um, th- no one else is doing this in the world. No one else. I saw somebody say today, not even Florida. Not even Florida. <laughs> this has been, this is the low watermark. Florida's, Florida's, if you, if you want to suggest that doing nothing about something is the Floridian approach, when you start saying not even Florida is doing this, then all of a sudden that's where the conversation goes. Real talkers, we want to know where you're at. I've already got a ton of emails. Like I, I opened up my inbox this morning and it was, I can't say it was full because we have, I don't want to brag, but we do have unlimited storage on our emails. <laughs> but there's a ton of them. Nancy wrote in. Nancy has some strong words for the Premier of Alberta, for Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Chief Medical Officer of Health, for the Health Minister, Tyler Shandro. She has CC'd talk at RyanJesperson.com. Thank you, Nancy. Mr. Premier, she writes, what the hell is wrong with you? You are incompetent beyond imagination. Nancy says, no isolation for positive cases. No testing by the end of August. Mm -hmm. No contact tracing either. It's the wild, wild west out here. She says only 77% of eligible Albertans have had even one vaccine. Nobody under the age of 12, of course. Numbers are on the rise. No danger there, she says. Healthcare workers spent, exhausted. You want to cut their pay, cut their jobs. You lie along with officials from Alberta Health about staff shortages, bed closures. You should see some of the DMs we have about bed shortages. Nancy says, we see right through you. You're endangering the province. It's shameful. Your government, Jason, is the laughing stock of the country. I'll get back to Nancy's email in a second. You know what they're going to say today? You know, the, the premier's pimple-faced attack dogs are going to say today, right? Tell me. 
They're going to talk about how the media wants COVID to last forever. They're going to say some people, they're, they're going to find some op-ed. It'll, it'll be written by a friendly reporter, one of theirs, right? And they'll link to it and say, here's wisdom. Jason will say something like, courageous take by Rick Bell or Leisha Corbella. He'll say, he'll say, strong take from, you know, and, and then it'll say, some people want COVID to last forever. I mean, of course, the truth is, if you do want COVID to last forever, treat it like this. Mm-hmm. Back to Nancy's email. I've said it to you before, Premier, but it's worth repeating. This is what people will remember about you. Incompetence, irresponsibility, and heartlessness. You make me sick. You might literally make me sick, says Nancy. I shouldn't be laughing. She says, you'll be seeing me wearing my mask in public. There's no end in sight. It's still a pandemic. Your fancy slogans don't fool us. I love Alberta, she says. I do not love the government in charge. You will make my choice so very easy. Disgusted in St. Albert. That from Nancy. I feel like that deserves one of those. Thanks, Nancy. Tracy wrote in to say, Jespo, I don't know. Maybe you could call this trash talk. Should I save it? I don't think so. I think we'll have enough for tomorrow. No, 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 no. We've got more (laughs) than enough. We've got enough. Tracy says, I'm not in support of the government being so open right now about the current COVID situation. I just kind of found myself thinking for a minute. She says, like, during the past year, it's been shown that washing your hands and wearing a mask has pretty much eliminated any record of, like, the flu, so to speak. We don't see the numbers we normally do. And she says, you know, we, we've taken things like this for granted, but it's actually been really positive. Do you think we might care enough to try to use what we learned through the pandemic to, to continue to better our health practices, says Tracy? Even though I see insults flying all around right now, I, I hope that we can have a good discussion about how we see colds and flus and how we treat public health mandates she says, I, I hope people realize we can take steps to actually help and make things better. That's kind of what the government's banking on right now. This is, this is the perspective of a government. If they want to spin this, the spin will be, well, they'll say freedom. They'll be talking about freedom, but it'll be, it'll, it'll be about personal responsibility, right? I mean, that's essentially what this points to. When you start saying things like isolating after a positive diagnosis is recommended but not mandatory you're putting that on people and what it will ultimately do is make people distrustful and fearful of one another and it's putting it's pitting albertan against albertan against albertan it's and it's it's just creating even more of an atmosphere of fear yeah I'll be curious to see where our live chat goes on this today. Um, We've received confirmation last minute because we're doing this live. Ubaka Ogbogu, he he was on the show just a short time ago. He's a law professor, uh, an expert in health law and science policy out of the University of Alberta. And uh, he's a fellow with the uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. I just like saying that because, you know, some people it's just that's going to set some people off. He reached out yesterday. He said, hey. He said, you think he was just on Real Talk. What was he like four days ago or something like that? Yeah, last week. He said, do you you think I could come on and rant for an hour? He's promised good ratings, which not every guest will do. I I appreciate the gutsiness of promising good ratings. 
Uh, we said, yeah. And I wanted to leave some runway for him. So he's going to join us after we talk to Scott. So that'll be coming up in like an hour and a half or so. Great. I wonder what he wants to talk about. <laughs> what do you think he wants to talk about? Before we get into our conversation with David A. Robertson, I almost feel today feels a little bit surreal. Like it just it, it doesn't feel. The fact that you can be diagnosed, you can be test positive for COVID-19 and it's recommended you isolate. It's recommended that you isolate. I went into a store yesterday. I didn't have a mask on. I'm sort of allowing myself that freedom. I oftentimes carry one. I have one with me in the vehicle all the time or in my satchel. And um, I find myself putting it on. Went to hockey camp the other day with the little man. Was walking in. I noticed that people inside wearing masks. I thought, yeah, sure. I'll throw it on. I'm influenced by I, I can be peer pressured or positively influenced. But I don't wear it all the time anymore. Not against it. Your own personal choice. That's totally fine. But I was walking into a store yesterday to pick something up real quick. And I noticed on the door, they said, masks are requested. And I thought, that's cool. It's your business, your call, right? That business owner feels more comfortable if people wear masks. They're not saying we demand masks or we require masks, but they say masks are requested. Did a quick heel spin back out to the car, picked it up, boom, put it on. No problem. Mm-hmm. Happy to do it. That's masks. When you start talking about isolating after a positive test, isolating's requested. Isolating is recommended. Seriously? The thing that I just don't understand is that children, all of the kids of Alberta, every last one of them, all of the ones under 12 are not vaccinated. They will be going into schools in September and not vaccinated. It's that's where the, like the, the, the seasonal flu usually gets passed around the most. And the thing that just boggles my mind is Dr. Henshaw has two children under the age of 12. And she's like, well. I suspect she'll write a book at some point, And I hope that she'll speak candidly. There's been, we talk about waves of COVID. There's kind of a second wave, uh, just to speak frankly. Here's some real talk. There's a second wave of, uh, of I think, disdain and distrust aimed at Alberta's chief medical officer of health right now. You think? But but you can't, as a public commentator, I'm not going to be, I'm not the one that's going to be swayed by a bunch of loud, anonymous, braying accounts on Twitter. Mm. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about doctors and oh, yeah. researchers that are putting their names. I'm not talking about Daryl 4565165459. Underscore. Under, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm not talking about that guy. Dana Henshaw, you should resign. No, I'm talking about people that are like ER physicians, Mm -hmm. ICU docs. Um, We got into this. We talked to Dr. James Talbot. What was it? It was months ago. You can go back and and he he argued at that time, a former chief medical officer of health. He argued at that time. He basically said, Jesperson, you need to give her the benefit of the doubt. He said, you don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. We're all proud of her. She's doing a great job right now. I'm seeing more and more physicians come out and speak against her. I'll be curious to know where this goes. We're going to talk to David A. Robertson in just a moment. 
every Thursday, and this will tee up our conversation. This is perfect timing, as a matter of fact. Every Thursday, on behalf of our friends at Prairie Catering, we offer somebody right here on Real Talk an opportunity to eat your words. Presented by Prairie Catering. Now, you're probably aware just the other day, Manitoba's new like just sworn in, just sworn in Minister of Indigenous Reconciliation and Northern Relations, Alan Lajimodier. 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 Thank you. Was directly challenged in Manitoba's legislature after he talked about, no, I'm going to let the video speak for itself, but he's, he's, des- he's describing residential schools as run by folks who believed they were doing the right thing. Man, this is when leader of Manitoba's NDP, you know, Wab Canoe. Well, I mean, I don't know whether he knew about our Prairie Catering promotion or not, but he, he just thought, no, I'm not going to sit here and listen to this shit. Here's how this all played out. Of it. Um, the, the residential school system was designed to take indigenous children and give them the skills and abilities they would need to fit into uh, society as it moved forward. So, uh, I am an honorary witness for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I listen to the stories of the survivors. Yes. And I cannot accept you saying what you just said about residential schools. It was the expressed intent of residential schools to kill the Indian in the child. It is not cultural relativism. It is not revisionist history for us to say that that was wrong. Any right-minded person at the time should have known that it was wrong. Many did know and speak up against it. And if you are to take your job that you've been appointed to by Mr. Pallister seriously, starting today, you have to change that thinking. I look forward to working with you in the future. (laughs) Yeah. We'll give you a a chance, but you can't be out here defending residential schools if you want to work with Indigenous communities. Killing the Indian in the child was wrong. That's what they talked about at the time when they were started, when they were run. We all know that that was wrong. So you have to move past that. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to working with you in the future. That's what a politician says when their brain is an absolute hurricane and they have no idea what to say because they've realized they have just stepped in one big time preposterous unbelievable if you're wob canoe listening to that you kidding me we took about two seconds to determine what we were going to feature in this week's edition of eat your words presented by prairie catering just a reminder prairie catering is offering corporate catering for office meetings in person or virtual they can deliver They host business meetings and conferences at the stunningly beautiful Art Gallery of Alberta. 
From executive boardrooms to their state-of-the-art theater, they can host up to 300 people. And right now, if you mention Eat Your Words on Real Talk, they'll give you 20% off any rental space at the AGA for the remainder of the 2021 calendar year. Eat Your Words is presented on Real Talk by Prairie Catering. David A. Robertson is uh, the, uh, I mean, the Governor General's literary award-winning author of a number of young books, including When We Were Alone. He's a member of the Norway House Cree Nation, currently living in Winnipeg. The author of the opinion piece that recently ran just under a week ago in the Globe and Mail, Brian Pallister, has shattered the relationship between Indigenous people and the Manitoba government. A good friend of this show, David, it's wonderful to have you back. I wish that we didn't have to bring you back every single time that you've got, I mean... For Pete's sake, we just rolled that video and I'm sitting there like the first time I saw it, my jaw just hit the floor. I'm going, what the hell is going on with this government? What is going on with people? And it's not just limited to this government, but obviously it lit a fire under you as well. Yeah, absolutely. In one sense, if you know this government, it shouldn't have been that shocking. But to hear somebody say that in the position that they had been uh, appointed to as Indigenous reconciliation minister and then to defend residential schools was uh it was really stunning um and i was really proud of wob for stepping up and putting him in his place and he did so professionally and he did so with grace and uh despite what the pc caucus tweeted out directly after uh, calling him a bully i mean what's lost in that is that wob canoe who is a good friend of mine, is a intergenerational survivor of residential school system, of residential school system uh, and an honorary witness to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And um, he was not going to sit there and listen to that. And I applaud him for it. I don't know what the vetting process was for this man, Alan Lajamodier. Um, it couldn't have been his knowledge about history. Uh, maybe it was the size of his foot to make sure it fit into his mouth. I, I felt like, and I don't know Wab Canoe personally like you do, uh, I felt like I could feel, uh, you, you know, when so, I mean, it, it's like when somebody has their anger just reined in, right? I mean, you talk about professionalism, but I would imagine if I was him, I would be seething to hear that comment. And I'm not sure, actually. I mean, it would help knowing that cameras were rolling. You'd be reminding yourself the inner, inner dialogue would be like, whoa, just for a second. But I would be pissed if I was him. Yeah, there there were indigenous people across Canada who were pissed at what Alan Najimodier said, in particular in Manitoba, um, because of the track record of Brian Pallister. Um, Bob showed incredible restraint. But you have to remember, he deals with this all the time, you know, in the position that he's in as an indigenous person and also as leader of an official opposition in a political party. um, He undoubtedly deals with racism and discrimination uh, on a daily basis. And so um, he handles it with with grace, I I feel, and humility. And um, but also um, he's a very intelligent man and he is um, a very confident man. And um, and he was not going to listen to that. And, uh, and, you know, I think that a lot of people in his position may have just sat there and listened to it. Um, a lot of people would have. <laughs> I think I wouldn't have been uh, as graceful as he was in responding to Lajimodia's comments. Um, but, you know, he uh, that's why he is. Uh, that was leadership. 
You know, it's more leadership than Pallister has in his pinky finger right now. What was it? Let, let me I mean, it's uh, whoever. I don't know if you wrote your own headlines. I suspect not. I know typically newspapers, they got the headline writer. I mean, this one, Brian Pallister has shattered the relationship between indigenous people and the Manitoba government. It's a position statement. What prompted you to write this? I mean, what compelled you to put this down on paper? Well, I've been doing more and more of this work over the past couple of years uh, through my writing career. Um, advocacy has been something that I've been feeling more and more responsible um, to get involved in because of the platform that I have. And um, I was just, uh, they just reached out to me um, to write this opinion piece that Go- the Globe and Mail did. And um, when they pitched me what they wanted this opinion piece to be about, um, I knew that I already had strong feelings about what had happened and uh, what had ha- has happened in the past with Pallister and his dealings with Indigenous people and communities. And um, I want to do what I can uh, in whatever platform I have to ensure that this man uh, and this party, until it changes drastically, is not in power um, because it is doing significant damage to Indigenous people and communities just through words and action. Um, and it, you know, it needs to come to an end. And, you know, here's a guy who is dealing with a firestorm of controversy um, and who needs to come out and speak and be a leader. And he hasn't said anything for two weeks. No one knows where he is. I mean, is that leadership? Is that what, is that what, you know, you want to see in in your premier? Um, Is that what you want to see in the leader of a province? Uh, I don't think so. I don't, I think that everybody would agree with that. You're early in your piece. You're, you're quick to point out that you don't think that this is an issue of ignorance uh, you talk about Brian Pallister's wife, who has Icelandic heritage, the fact that he's acknowledged the the, the contributions of indigenous people to uh, uh, the, the, his understanding or his impressions of Icelandic history. Why was it important for you? Why do you think that's an important note to kick off on? Well, it provides context. You know, that that is a little known story, you know, except for if you live in the Gimli area or have Icelandic heritage. Um, you know, the fact that John Ramsey uh, assisted uh, settlers in that area so that they could survive. And eventually that area turned into the town of Gimli, Manitoba. Um, a lot of people don't know that, that if that town, if that town had not been supported in its early iterations, um, by a Cree man who, by the way, had his family wiped out by smallpox brought by those settlers, um, that sort of grace and forgiveness and strength and courage is something that I think is embodied in a lot of indigenous people across Canada. Um, and why it was important for me to bring that up was to show that, hey, Pallister is not a dumb guy either. Like he, he, is, he is a smart man. Uh, he knows history. He knows the contributions of Indigenous people. Um, and I think that it, 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 it displays his overt racism. Um, and I, I have no um, hesitation in saying that. I judge people um, based on what they say and what they do. I never prejudge anybody. Um, and his actions over the past five years have been reprehensible in this area. And um, I felt like I needed to first lay them out. All I did in that article was I just dropped facts. That's all I did. Yeah. And I provided some context and opinions on it. Like he said what he said. He's done what he's done. And um, I wanted Manitobans in Canada to know um, what that what that what those words were, what those actions were, and then let them decide for themselves that this is the sort of man that we should have as a leader of a party in a province um, that has really dealt with uh, more racism towards indigenous people than most other provinces. You talk about 
I guess it was just over four years ago. It was on June 16th of 2017 when the premier embarked on his uh, journey of reconciliation, this big bike ride. And uh, it, it, it drew some parallels to some other journeys I've seen some politicians take across the country. But this one, I think, as you outlined, particularly significant because uh, I'm, is smoke and mirrors being generous in describing this big bike ride? You want to take us into it? Well, it's a photo op, right? It's essentially it's essentially a photo op. It's it's Trudeau, um, you know, putting a teddy bear at the site of an unmarked grave, um, while also taking survivors to court on appeal because he doesn't want to pay them as much as they've been ordered to pay. You know, it's it's a distraction technique. It's a photo op. Um, you know, he went on this little bike ride um, to Pegasus First Nation from Winnipeg. People need to understand from Selkirk. People need to understand that. The Pegasus people, the people of Pegasus First Nation, were displaced and forced removal um, uh, happened. And they ended up where they are now, um, about two hours away from Winnipeg. And the route they took was the route they took when they were displaced. And so um, here is our, our premier who went on this bike ride that he dubbed uh, a ride for reconciliation, a journey of reconciliation or something, um, kicked it off with, I believe, the Grand Chief at the time, uh, Derek Nipadak, and then did not speak to one Indigenous person during his ride, did not speak to Indigenous people after his ride was over in Peguis, um, but had time on the way to attend two, um, you know, PC events, right? I mean, uh, and then said, as the spokesperson said at the end was, he was too tired to meet with anybody. Well, he wasn't too tired to, to go to a fundraiser. No. Um, so, I mean, all you need to know about him is is in that one act. And, it, and unfortunately, though, it is one act of many that I could, I could um, you know, talk about um, that he has done that really is, I mean, it's, it's kind of unbelievable. Um, and it's unbelievable that anybody would actually fall for that as, um, you know, uh, even a symbolic act of reconciliation. David, for, for people that aren't necessarily 100% in tune with what's been going on in Manitoba or don't necessarily pay attention to every story around federal or provincial politics, take us into some of the more egregious moments, would you think, where this government, under the leadership of Manitoba's premier, has really fallen short? I mean, you write that they have shattered the relationship between Indigenous people and the government. Obviously, strong words used with intent. Take us into what you've seen recently. Well, yeah, my, my strong words of intent uh, reflect his intent, right, uh, on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, uh, in, in 2017, I believe, uh, he said that he was scared to walk around downtown. Um, that was a very overt inference to um, the fact that Indigenous people are stereotypically the ones that people think are uh, downtown and are on substances, um, and so that was a, a veiled attack on Indigenous people. More recently, during the pandemic, he got on his one of his very few um, press conferences and whined about the fact that Indigenous people were getting priority um, in the vaccination program by the federal government. Um, and all of those things, it's, it's race baiting. You know, what it is, is it's telling Manitobans to be mad at Indigenous people for this thing or for that. So uh, essentially what he was saying about the vaccination program and Indigenous people getting priority 
who were being affected disproportionately um, was that if you don't get the vaccine in time or earlier, it's the it's you got to blame the Indians, right? Um, and that is a perpetuation not only of, of of racism, but it's uh, very dangerous in how it shapes perceptions of Indigenous people that have unfortunately um, how they've been shaped for for decades. Um, and and that is and so those are just two two examples of of many um, in his in his career as premier which has lasted, I believe, about five years by now. Yeah, I remember I remember when he was sworn in and and, um, and there was talk about his leadership and the fact that he had sort of just at the time I laughed, to be honest, uh, when he was just totally unapologetic about the fact that he intended to govern from Costa Rica. You know, people were like, you've got this big property of Costa Rica. You've done really well. Uh, do you intend to spend more time in, in Manitoba? And he's like, nah. And and honestly, David, at the time, I I. I kind of thought it was pretty funny uh, at the time. I actually think I gave him an boy because it was so unapologetic. And then now, I mean, in retrospect, you look back and it's like the guy just doesn't seem to give a fuck. You know what I mean? He's just one of those yeah. guys that does not care. And uh, and and I don't know. Personally, he'd probably say, who are, who are you to say that I don't care? But I'm just saying, hey, man, I'm just seeing I'm just talking about what I see. It's an interesting mix with him because on one hand, I, I think you're right. I don't think he, he doesn't care about how he's, his words and actions are affecting, for example, in this case, indigenous people doesn't, doesn't give a crap. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, from what I've heard, you know, he is very affected by people not liking him. You know, he has a very thin skin. Uh, and so when I heard after the Globe and Mail uh, opinion piece was published that he reads the Globe and Mail daily, I thought, that's awesome, because I wanted him to read my opinion piece, um, because I wanted him to uh, hopefully do a bit of self-reflection. I don't think he did. Uh, he, you know, I probably just feel like he was probably annoyed at me. Um, but he has never walked back comments that he has made. He has never apologized for comments that he has made or actions he has taken. He has stand. He has stood with his comments, uh, no matter what he said, uh, as recently as a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I don't think there's any um, question that he is not going to apologize or walk back any comments um, when he when he eventually steps to the mic, whatever that is. I actually think the next time he steps to the mic, he's just going to announce his res- resignation and who who is his, his successor is going to be in the fall. I don't think that he's going to last very much longer as premier. His party is abandoning him. The people of Manitoba have no confidence in him in general. Um, and I think his days are numbered. And I think that's a very good thing for this province. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, because you obviously have I mean, you're right there. Um, what are your fellow Manitobans saying about this? I mean, it's it's uh, it, it, you take these case studies. Alberta is another one. I mean, we opened today. I almost can't believe what's happening in Alberta right now. It's almost it. It's like it's it's both unbelievable and totally believable at the same time when you look at, at who Alberta's premier is and who he takes his advice from and how he makes his decisions. And um, but I mean, it's just, you know, the, the remarkable thing about Jason Kenney, though, is that right now he's playing to this dwindling base. And the more he plays to the dwindling base, the more you realize that he doesn't even have support within his own party. And it's pretty remarkable, actually, to see several conservative premiers across the province managing this. 
what gives you the sense that, I mean, you put it on the record here in your piece in the Globe as well, that you think that the premier might resign. What gives you the confidence to speculate about that? What are you seeing or hearing from people? Well, I think he sees the writing on the wall. I think he knows how unpopular he is. I mean, he, he sees the polls that list him as one of the most unpopular premiers in this province. Um, again, he's not he's not a dumb man. Um, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows that um, his Indigenous uh, minister before stepped down because of the things that he said. Um, two Indigenous board members that he appointed have stepped down recently and directly cited the fact that they don't stand with him because of what he said. Um, you have uh, people in his party who are posting pictures on Instagram or Twitter of um, how we need to talk and listen to each other for reconciliation and having, you know, uh, a, a book about reconciliation, residential school history open on a table and is a very thinly veiled attack on their own their own leader in their own party. Um, so, you know, what's happening right now is a bit of a mutiny within that party. Um, and, you know, I, I'm. I don't feel bad for the guy because he's done it to himself. But yeah, I think that he just sees the writing on the wall. He wants to go out while he can um, maybe uh, save some face um, and, and then let someone else clean up the mess that he's made because he has made, um, you know, ironically, as much as he said, you know, his comments recently about colonizers uh, coming into this province and wanting to build people, build, build things and not destroy them. Well, he's destroyed a party and he's going to leave someone else to build back up. Do you think it can be built back up? I mean, when you when you when you write that, you know, I mean, essentially that the relationship between the government and indigenous people has been shattered. Um, do you think, it, you know, can people go and, and pick up the pieces? I mean, do you think that there's uh, the will and the skill within that party, the governing party to make that happen? Well, they need they need a good leader. You know, um, I've always said, like, I, I'm not politically affiliated. You know, uh, I will vote for who I think is the best leader. Um, and if, whether it's uh, PC or whether it's liberal, whether it's NDP, um, who, who I think is going to be the best leader, um, I will vote for and I will support. Um, the PC party in Manitoba has an enormous amount of work to do. Um, I don't think that anybody within that party right now has the capacity to build back up what he has what he has broken down but if they bring in someone who can do the work to at first um fix all the mess that he's made and then lead this party in a better direction um i do think that there are people out there who have the capacity to do to, to, to do that for example you know i know that brian bowman here in the city i i believe is a is a pc um a potential pc candidate in in my estimation you know, if he became leader of this party, um, I believe that, you know, he's a good man. I like Brian Bowman. Um, you know, I'll still support Wab Canoe, but um, I think that he has the ability to fix and right the ship. Um, so I don't think anybody is irredeemable. I don't even think Pallister is irredeemable if he has the humility to go out and apologize. I don't think he's going to do it. But um, listen, I don't, I don't really think that anybody in this world um, has... Um, is completely irredeemable. Anybody can take the actions. Um, the actions are available. Anybody can take the actions to um, say the right things, to apologize, and to move forward, learn from what they've done, and be better. Um, and I think that we as people also need, need to give people the chance to do that. Um, and whether they take that chance or not, that's 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 the rub, right? I mean, Wob said that himself when he was talking to Alan Lajimodia. He said, we'll give you a chance. 
despite what he just said, despite the hurtful things that he said, he said, we'll give you a chance. That sort of nature is, is I think, within a lot of us. Um, but it's going to take a ton of work to fix that party, in my, in my opinion, um, from where it is right now. The, the whole idea of, I mean, and, and, and you're speaking, I would say, graciously, and certainly Wab Canoe did. Like I said, if I was him, I would have been shaking, uh, and maybe he was. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, saying, you know, we're willing to work with you or, or to accept an apology and, and to say, you know, a Manitoba premier could simply apologize. We had an audience member earlier on when we played that video clip. Um, I can't scroll back to find the name, but whoever the viewer was said, can you imagine saying something like that after everything that's been going on? You know, there was a flare up. I don't know if you saw it, uh, a, a golf course, a private golf course in Edmonton. Uh, had to issue an apology yesterday. Did you see this? The photo at a tournament? These these four women, these members at this no. private course. This is going to piss you off. Just FYI. Um, okay. Standing on a tee box. These four women holding drinks and they have orange like uh, imagine Gilligan's Island type hats, like orange beach hats, four orange hats. And their T-shirts read drunk wives matter. Drunk wives matter. And they posted a photo. You know who re- reposted the photo was the golf course. And yesterday, oh yeah, and yesterday they issued an apology, which was obviously crafted by somebody who works in crisis communications. And it basically said, like, we're idiots and we're totally sorry and it will never happen again and we'll be better. And we don't justify it. We can't justify it. We don't know what we were thinking. It was one of these kind of apologies and it'll move on and people will forget I don't get that. Like <laughs> people will forget about it and they'll dodge that bullet. But I'm looking at that photo and I'm and I don't know who these women are, but I'm thinking, can you imagine with everything going on right now? Can you imagine someone mentioning the T-shirt idea and then laughing and thinking it's and then actually going to make the T-shirt and then actually wearing the T-shirt and then actually getting a photo and then posting it to me at that point? Uh, And hey, I've done some dumb things in my life, and I'm grateful that people have accepted my apologies on a whole bunch of things. But at some point you go, I don't know, man. You know, it still shocks me um, how um, so many people just cannot read the room. They just, you know, they just cannot read the room. That baffles me. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how you can be that out of touch and ignorant. Um, I, I really don't even have an answer for it because it's just not in my capacity, um, to think that how I could even be so out of touch to do something so incredibly offensive and, um, hurtful to, um, a movement that is, is very important and necessary in this, in, in this continent in North America. Um, you know, that's, that, that's just bewildering. I don't know what else to say. It, you know, but it's the same. It's in the same wheelhouse as what Lajimodia did. I mean, there's there is a correlation there, right? I mean, how can you, as the reconciliation minister, go to the mic and espouse the benefits of residential schools at any time, especially considering the fact that we are in the middle of finding unmarked graves every other day, almost, uh, of children's bodies at former residential school sites. And you have the audacity um, and stupidity to say that those people meant well. It's actually um, patently false as well. We know for a fact that the government knew exactly what was happening in these schools 
as early as 1907, they hired a doctor named Bryce who investigated um, the treatment of Indigenous children in residential schools. His report cited um, horrifying uh, findings, including the fact that mortality rates in many schools were, I think, as high as 40 percent. Um, and the Canadian government, rather than acting on his findings, um, fired him, pushed him into retirement. And he still he still um, published that report on his own. It's called a national crime, I believe. Um, but I mean, it just shows you the willful ignorance of at that time, the federal government. And it also displays the fact that um, genocide is uh, requires intent to harm. And this system cannot be viewed as anything other than genocide. And um, and it, it when I you know again when I heard Lajimodia make those comments I was my my did my jaw did drop um, that he could be and as an indigenous man as well I mean it's 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 almost you know more confounding um, that you can be so out of touch and ignorant about history and again it calls into question the vetting process I know I made a joke about that earlier but I mean how can Pallister have appointed somebody who knows so little. Uh, obviously, about the history and its impacts. Um, a lot of this rests on his shoulders for appointing Lajamodier and putting him into a position that he was clearly not ready for. And you could see his uncomfortableness um, and the fact that as soon as he said what he said, he was like, oh, shit, mm-hmm. I am in trouble. Yeah. Like, you could see he was terrified. As oh, he's soon on as his he heels. Said what he, said, yeah. he was like, you could see him, like, as soon as he said what he said, he was like, you know, and you could see that he was like, oh, God. And then, um, you know, he, he was just in over his head. And I'm, I'm actually shocked that he hasn't resigned yet. For, yeah, for, I, to be fair. I agree with you, David. It's not even it's one thing if it's like, you know, sorry, our dumbass minister of energy <laughs> or like the, the minister. You know, if you're in Alberta, you get to pick all kinds of fun. You know, our minister of red tape reduction ran his mouth and, and said something. No, this is the minister of reconciliation. Like this is the one guy, uh, one of our audience members by the name of Sharon. Sharon, she's very proud of her Métis heritage. She says, as a matter of fact, Lajemodier, she says, is is a very influential and significant surname in Métis circles. And she said, which yep. makes this all the much more ironic, right? As somebody that should have, I, I, what do you say? Someone should have known better. It makes me sound like some sort of a, you know, some school teacher kind of scolding this government minister, but it just. But it's not wrong, mind. Ryan. It's, it's not wrong, Ryan. He should have known better. There's no excuse. And I've said this a million times over the last two years. There's no excuse not to know about residential school history. If you do not know about residential school history at this point in time in Canada or in North America, including the boarding school system in the United States, then you just aren't listening. Period. Where do you think this goes? Well, I mean, I, I don't know because I think Pallister is so unpredictable. Mm. Um, if I were to guess, I, I do think that in the near future, Lajibodi will resign. Mm. Uh, I don't think I don't think that his um, tenure. Uh, as that as that minister is 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 tenable. I don't. I just don't think it's. I say every anybody's redeemable, but some people's jobs are not redeemable, and I don't think that job in what you know his position in that job is redeemable. I just don't think that he can fix what he's done for that position. Um, the same thing with Pallister. I do not think as premier that he is redeemable as the premier. Maybe as a human being but not as a premier, not as a leader. So what I think is going to happen is I think that the next time you hear Pallister talk, 
he's going to announce plans to have a successor and to resign. Um, and I also think in the near future, you're going to see Elijah Modi step down because I think he also needs to see the writing on the wall. Um, and as much work as he's doing behind the scenes to try and to mend things, I just don't think it's fixable. Um, that's what I think is going to happen. I could be completely wrong. I mean, Palliser does have a big enough eagle to, to stick around um, and just say, screw you guys. You know, um, I, I said what I said, you know, and, um, you know, he might just do that. I have no idea. I don't know the man personally. I'm again, I'm only making judgments on his character based on what he said and what he's done as a leader of this province. If, if there's anything I know, it's that the people are well served when their politicians and elected officials are driven by their big, enormous egos. Right, David? Um, <laughs> let me ask you this in closing. Uh, you touched on the prime minister. And you touched on, you know, the, that, that photo op. We had uh, um, the prime minister's number one fan, Warren Kinsella, was on the show a while ago talking about that, taking big, huge swipes at Justin Trudeau for that photograph uh, with the teddy bear. You talk about the federal government continuing to, to sue survivors or at least to, to maintain their, their uh, legal action against uh, indigenous residential school survivors. Federal election, I think the rate's going to drop in, in less than 10 days. I mean, I think it's going to be called soon. Um, um, yep. Where do you th- where do you think that this everything we're talking about factors into the federal election? And, and, and if I can ask you to look into your crystal ball, um, what role do you think conversations around reconciliation and and meaningful action on indigenous issues, uh, including communities with without clean water and everything else? Uh, I mean, I'm asking you a big, massive question, but how do you think that'll factor into the federal election? Um, it'll factor in as much as the people make it an issue. The people of Canada make it an issue. Because make no mistake, the political leaders of this country will do what the people want them to do, what, what, they, what the people put on, the, on their agenda. Um, if Canadians are vocal, um, if they are allies, um, and Indigenous people in, in Indigenous communities are vocal about the things that they want to see as a priority in this country by the leaders that are um, up for election, um, then it will be something that is up for discussion um, during that long campaign run. Um, otherwise, in the past and and uh, in the, this fall, I, I don't think it's going to factor in much um, for who Canadians choose as their prime minister. Um, so again, it's it's the will of the people. It's by the will of the people, and you know we are the bosses of the prime minister. You know he he answers to what we ask him. We make a priority for his government. Um, so if we make this a if we make this a priority, if people stand up and say, "You need to answer for this," it is completely unacceptable that we have almost seventy communities are with boil water advisories. I mean, that can't have drinking water. I mean, that's reprehensible if we call ourselves a first world country. So we need to make it a priority um, um, for this upcoming federal election. If we don't then it won't be something that uh, is decisive um, for who we, who becomes our prime minister. I should also mention uh, this is a a more, this is an election more than any other where it's really a choice of the lesser of two evils. You know, I don't think that Trudeau is a a good leader right now. I voted for him. I I have no problem saying that last time. Um, I, I would not vote for him again. I do not think that he has done a good job as a prime minister of this country. On the other hand, O'Toole is might be worse. So 
the only leader that I really have any confidence in um, is Jagmeet Singh. Unfortunately, he's not going to be prime minister. Um, my hope is that he at least becomes, uh, has a strong uh, presence in the opposition uh, because he has a voice of reason and I have uh, a great deal of respect for him. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you're going to see another liberal minority. Um, mm. And I just, that's important. You know, I, I just don't think it's probably maybe the best case scenario, to be frank. Um, but again, I'm asking, you know, if pe people are watching this, Ryan, I want people to stand up and make this an issue, you know, make this an issue for the, for the, for the politicians to have to address in this election, be an ally, um, recognize what indigenous people and communities are going through right now, but have gone through historically. And, um, and, you know, do, do right for um, this country because it benefits everybody to have a country where everybody's treated equitably uh, and fairly and their basic human rights are addressed. A liberal minority. That's interesting. That's an interesting call, right? It's it's uh, you're either giving and, and isn't it? OK, I'm unpacking what you're saying live on the fly here. Um, I've, you're not the first person I've heard in the last week or so talk about Jagmeet Singh and how they think that the NDP could pick up some seats in this next election, which is um, interesting, really, if you look back to. Uh, October of 2019, and uh, I mean, the NDP was in free fall and having real problems literally refinancing their real estate holdings so they didn't go bankrupt as a party. I mean, people were like, the, you know, if, if Trudeau were to call another election to try to chase a majority government, the NDP would have been the party most in trouble. Now people are looking to them as, I mean, as, as Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau falter, it obviously serves the NDP well. You also, I suppose... Um, you know, and I'm not saying you're banking on, but calling a liberal minority, you're suggesting that you think that the conservatives might hold some seats in urban centers. And I'd be curious to see if they can. I know that that's probably a priority in the conservative war room uh, for Aaron O'Toole. I think that the conservatives are going to lose seats and um, and I'll be curious to see where they go. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, could the liberals, I think, could achieve a majority government, but it, but it wouldn't be because they're doing a fantastic job. I mean, this is this is actually, yeah. to be quite honest with you, it's it's a discouraging election. Absolutely, you know, the the only way the liberal government gets a majority is if people just see O'Toole and think, "I'm not voting for that guy." Yeah, you know, you know, and I and I, and I again, like O'Toole was an, was a horrendous choice as leader of that party. I cannot believe that they chose him as leader of that party. Um, everything that he's done and said in my in, from in my estimation, from what I've seen. Um, has been uh, has done that party no favors. Was there anybody know? in and that so, leadership race, David, that you thought would have been a? I mean, if 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 you had a vested interest, if you were a member of that party, who do, who would you have voted for? I I don't know, man. I mean, uh, <laughs> okay. federally, I, I I I have no like. I say that I'm not a, a party affiliated, and I'm not. I mean that. But federally, I just don't see much in the PC party that I support. I don't see many people capable of being a prime minister that I would um, feel like could do a better job than anybody else. Um, so honestly, Ryan, I, I not to, not to knock anybody, but like, except for O'Toole, who I just, you know, I can't stand, but um, yeah, I, I just, what I is don't it about know. Aaron? What is it about Aaron O'Toole that you can't stand? Well, I mean, 
you know, for, I think I think as with Pallister, it is he has also an awful track record track record um, in his relations with indigenous people um, in what he said. You know, for example, here's a guy who went to a university in the last year or two and gave a talk to people on how to be a residential school apologist, how to argue with residential school pe- people who, you know, who are who are arguing that it was a system of genocide. Um, so. I mean that right there. If, if, I mean, if you support a, a guy like that, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to say about that, you know. Um, and you know, defending, uh, for example, Canada Day without giving much mention to um, the discoveries that were being made or any sort of appreciation uh, for what people were saying about canceling Canada Day. Um, people weren't saying to can- literally cancel the holiday. They were saying maybe this year instead of setting off fireworks, give a bit of reflection for the fact that thousands of children died. That's, that's, that's all we were saying, you know? Um, and then he's given these speeches with a Johnny McDonald doll. And I, I said that, I think I said that last time he's given those speeches with a Johnny McDonald doll, literally in his screenshot. Like if, if I was right here, you know, I'd have a, an action figure of Johnny McDonald right here. I mean, that's the architect of residential schools in Canada. He is, responsible for the deaths of thousands of children, as with Bishop Grandin, as with Ryerson. I mean, so if you're going to be that tone deaf, I don't have much, um, I don't even, you know, I don't have much support for you. It's not, it's not tone deaf. It's not, it, it, it's intentional. David, yeah, right. Like, like, yeah. you, like, I, I know that you know, you're, you're talking to us from Manitoba and we're talking about Brian Pallister. And, and I know that I've brought up Alberta's government and Premier Jason Kenney three or four times in this interview. But there are parallels, obviously. And yeah, uh, I mean, you look at I mean, Jason Kenney, uh, I mean, his 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 entire M.O. is being plotted out. But, you know, these guys like Matt Wolf and Brock Harrison, and all these guys. I mean, Matt was the guy that steered the ship at Sun News. And I've and, you know, you talk to anybody in Canadian media about what it was like to work for Matt Wolf and, you know, to pitch stories. I've heard from the horse's mouth from prominent Canadians who would be household names and talk radio that had shows on Sun News. So people can figure that out themselves who I'm talking about. People that have said that they had human interest stories that were canceled by Matt Wolf. I think he was executive producer at the time talking about how conservatives don't want to hear stories that rely on empathy as a crutch. I mean, like these are the types of people It was absolutely intentional that there's a Sir John A. McDonald doll over the shoulder. That's not yeah. tone deaf. It's not an accident. Um, these guys are pricks, David, and the premiers are taking advice and, and the leader of Canada's official opposition, Aaron O'Toole, they're taking bad advice from people that are pricks. And we see it happen. And quite frankly, it's high time that more and more people like us and people standing on the sidelines at soccer fields and people in line at coffee shops start calling it for what it is. And start calling them out for it because they troll people. I mean, the, the, the premier of Alberta, all he's been doing for the past two weeks is trolling people. If, if you had no idea about what else was going on in the country, you would believe that who does or does not drive a pickup truck is the biggest issue facing Albertans right now because it's all Alberta's premiers talking about. Well, that and the fact that you don't have to isolate if you test positive for COVID-19 anymore. But other than that, all he's talking about is who does or doesn't drive a pickup truck. Why? because they have a bunch of daft pricks dictating their policy and their statements and more and more people need to be calling them out for it well i'm not going to disagree with you i just didn't i you know i didn't want to say that but you're you're right i you know (laughs) 
I'm going to always feel a bond with you. You'll remember you were here back on May 28th. Um, that was when yeah. you joined us for our conversation about indigenous culture and hunting and trapping. And of course, people will know that you're the author of On the Trap Line. Um, that was the morning after that discovery, right? Outside the mm-hmm. former Kamloops yep. Indian Residential. I will never forget, David, that conversation with you. It was still very raw. I was actually, as we were talking, I was still, you'll remember it took me three or four or five questions in, into the interview before we even touched on it because honestly, there was a, I don't even know how to describe what was going on between my ears. I couldn't believe it. And um, I'm always going to be grateful for your insight that morning. Well, I appreciate that. That was a tough day. And I appreciated you having us on to share um, what we were going through and our thoughts on that, those discoveries. Um, just like I appreciate you having me on today. Mm. So um, I, um, you know, I, thanks, thanks for, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat with you. It's always nice to chat with you, Ryan. Yeah. You too, buddy. Thanks for doing this. It's, uh, I mean, we don't get Governor General award-winning authors on the show every single day. Um, people should also know that, uh, I mean, they can read your memoir, Backwater, Family, Legacy, and Blood Memory. That was a Globe and Mail and Quill and Choir book of the year uh, in 2020. It's a pleasure to call you a friend, David. Thanks for this. Thanks again. I appreciate it. You got it. That's author David A. Robertson. You can uh, check out his website for more on. I mean, I, I, I've i sort of introduced him as like the author of this, the author of that. But his CV is wild. D.A. Robertson dot C.A. Uh, we're going to check in with uh, we're going to learn more about what's going on at Ferry Creek. These blockades in just a second. Jimmy Thompson's doing amazing journalism as the managing editor of Capital Daily. As a matter of fact, a, a conglomerate. And, and we'll get Jimmy to talk to us about this of independent media outlets took the RCMP to court. Just a short while ago, uh, we'll find out what went in there and what's going on. And this is expanding the conversation around logging in Western Canada. Uh, first, let me remind you, of course, though, that the team at Kubi Energy, all about sustainable energy. Of course, they're in the solar game. You know, they're headquartered out of Edmonton and, and Kamloops. We've told you that before, which means that they're doing installations in Saskatchewan, Alberta, B.C. and, and beyond. Big, huge ones like industrial applications. They're doing a lot of work on farms these days. There's actually a a brand new initiative. You can, uh, if you're an agricultural producer, tap into some available funds that will subsidize your transition to clean, even net zero energy. Of course, Kubi Energy also behind the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest on Monday's Positive Reflections. We introduce you to our three finalists right now. We are imploring you to go to our question of the week at ryanjesperson.com. Right at the top of the page, click on question of the week. You'll answer a few questions about how you feel about solar, where your mind's at, how much you understand it, whether or not you see it being an option for you. We wanted to test the waters to see where our audience is at. And then as you get to the end of the question, you'll be about 90 seconds in. That's when you have a chance to vote. And next Tuesday, we'll be observing a long weekend on Monday. We're taking the day off. The team is going to, you know, enjoy a little R&R. And Tuesday, we will introduce, we will reveal the winners of our Net Zero Solar Contest presented by the team at Kubi Energy. Also wanted to remind you, Trash Talk's coming up tomorrow. That's presented by the team at Local Waste. If you have something you got to get off your chest, maybe... You got a lot. Of, I mean, you got a lot of material to work with right now. Maybe this is the time that you send in your first ever trash talk to talk at RyanJesperson.com. The team at Local Waste has been working with businesses big and small for more than 25 years. If you'd like to maybe reimagine what your business's relationship with your waste manager looks like, check out localwaste.ca today.
These Ferry Creek blockades, uh, no matter how much you know, I'm sure you've heard of it, right? This is a great opportunity to get up to speed. You've heard about it. You know it has something to do with logging. You know it has something to do with those big, beautiful, so-called old-growth trees, right? Let's get into this up to the minute. The blockades have been in place for more than a year. This one, the, I mean, this pocket of Canada that we're talking about here on the West Coast is described as the last untouched old growth forest watershed in the entire region. Jimmy Thompson is there providing coverage as the managing editor of Capital Daily. You can read his and his team's work at CapitalDaily.ca. Jimmy, we're stoked to have you here this morning. I want to apologize. I went a little long there with David. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for hanging out and welcome to the show. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, before we get into, I mean, can you provide for us a little bit of context here, how we got to where we are today? What's the history of this? How far back do you want to go? Yeah, fair this question. Is, uh, you know, this is one of the oldest industries in BC, so we could go all the way back to the founding of the province if you want. But I think maybe we'll start in August probably would be a good uh, good place to start. So um, this activist in the, the Olympic Peninsula in the States noticed that there was uh, an area of, of, of old growth forest that was about to be logged on the southern end of Vancouver Island near Victoria, about two hours west of Victoria. And uh, so he started organizing people and, and he sent people's, you know, th- th- those coordinates and they set up camp out on a logging road or a series of logging roads uh, near Port Renfrew. And uh, they've been there ever since. I mean, a rotating cast, but a lot of people have been there since the very beginning. And uh, they're, they're, they're uh, blockading the road against Teal Jones, which owns the, the uh, logging rights there. This was uh, it, it sort of ramped up this past spring, right? There was an injunction granted. It was a win in court for the logging company. Yeah, exactly. So a court granted an injunction to Chill Jones on uh, April 1st. And then that uh, injunction just kind of sat there for a month and a half. So no one, you know, nothing really happened with it until the RCMP moved in on May 5th or May 17th. More than 400 arrests here. I mean, this has been something that's been pretty much i mean this has been an active scenario for months and months now yeah i, I mean the the they're probably actually closer to 500 at this point it's it's been uh it's kind of come in waves there have been a lot of arrests and then it kind of quiets down and then and then a lot more happening uh here and there but it's also kind of it's it's fascinating when you when you look at the sort of the tactics that are happening there's they're, they're, it's, it's almost like a, a rugby game or something where they'll, they'll, they'll lose some ground, then they'll sneak in behind and when the police are gone, <laughs> they'll retake a camp and then they'll cut down trees on the road and blockade. Like it's, it's just this constant cat and mouse game out there. Can you, can you, uh, you so you uh, joined at, uh, at Capital Daily, you joined the Narwhal, uh, National Observer, uh, APTN News, the Discourse, Indigenous News, and wow. Canadian Journalists for Free Expression, which is what I absolutely, first of all, what I love about this is just a whole bunch of indies uh, in on this, which is great. We're not talking about like Post Media and Shaw and Chorus and all these big companies. Um, tell us about this court action against RCMP and what prompted it and, and how are you feeling about the outcome? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned the, the bigger organizations there. They were invited to join. And, and I think there was a global cameraman who gave an affidavit. You know, they, then they went in, in conversations with the CAJ, these, the CBC and Post Media, whatever, they, they I don't know sure about Post Media, but definitely CBC and others um, said, you know, we're, we're, we're in favor of this. We want this to go ahead. We're going, good luck. 
um, but didn't actually provide <laughs> any any support. Um, but that that's their prerogative, and I think they're they're big, slow moving ships, so it's hard for them to get involved. So the court action um, came about because so it, I guess I should back up to when the actual injunction started being um, enforced, and that's when media started to have trouble getting in. Before that, it was you could just drive into the, the blockades. It was no problem. Um, and on the morning the injunction started being enforced, I drove up there. Um, I was among a lot, of, a lot of journalists trying to access the site that day. And when I got to the end of the logging road near to where the KQ's blockade was being, um, where, where the arrests were starting at the KQ's blockade, there was two cop cars. I mean, you just showed the picture. There were two cop cars blocking the road and uh, a bunch of police and they turned me away they said you know we're not letting anyone in and i said you mean you know you're not letting any protesters in like you're not letting you're not letting who in i'm, I'm here to cover the arrests that are happening like this is public land um what do you mean you're not you're not letting anyone in and um they said well you know with it, this is a, a site of an injunction like no one can access it so uh i i said can I talk to your boss? <laughs> like, is there someone you can let me? Who's your manager? Like this is <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I went full Karen on them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I asked to speak with the the, the press guy, but he's not there. Uh, the, there's no cell phone service access there, so um, I asked to you know use their radio, anything, nothing. So they sent me back out down the road. There's there's nothing else to be done. So I tried calling the guy when I got back out into cell service, and uh, nope, no response. So um, he didn't even pick up his phone that day. So, you know, the next day I sent out a reporter and she was corralled. She was blocked. She was prevented from seeing things. She was sort of shepherded around on like a media tour almost um, instead of being actually granted access to the site that she was there to to cover for me for the Capital Daily. And that happened just that happened with everyone. It didn't matter what media outlet they were with. That's actually that's right there. Emily Vance. And Jackie Lamport behind her, uh, they're our podcast team. So they've been out there a whole bunch. Um, oh, now yeah, you're just now you're just showing off. You have a podcast oh, team. All right. We have a podcast okay. crew. Oh, they're, they're okay. fantastic. All right. <laughs> Not to cannibalize your audience, but they're excellent. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, so what, what she, she was she was shepherded around and, and sort of guided by the by the police of you know what they want her to see. And that that's been the, the experience of a lot of journalists who have gone out there to cover this this police action. Um, so that's why we joined. So I mean the long story, that's that's why the media got involved was um, we're sort of saying you can't exclude media, you can't use these exclusion zones to to prevent media from doing their jobs. Um, when we're talking about public land um and police acting on behalf of the public so basically you won oh first of all uh, sam can we take full screen here we do have a policy here on the show that if if uh four-legged family members show up on camera we've got to meet them and so uh who are we seeing here uh with apologies to the to the podcast subscribers and listeners who is this beautiful animal this is glenn uh glenn came from the northwest territories when i used to live up there Wow, what a beautiful pup! Does Glenn Glenn doesn't mind being on camera? Obviously. Oh no, he's not shy. Is he a what is he? Is, is he a park collie? What what kind of dog is that? He's part. I mean, I got his DNA tested. Did you? Because um, he's yeah, he's like a total mix, and uh, he was part um, Bernese Mountain Dog. Yeah. Part I don't know a bunch of stuff, but it's so diluted in the north. I mean, the, the dogs are just 
they're wild so yeah it's like a it's like a punch bowl it's like a key party up there um exactly (laughs) what uh what what was the one breed that surprised you on the dna return on the forum was there was there one little bit in the mix that you went whoa catahoula leopard dog i was like that (laughs) doesn't really add up very cool those are beautiful dogs by the way so this judge uh you win a you win a variance to the injunction i should mention uh, represented by sean hearn your lawyer uh representing this this independent media conglomerate you win a variance to the injunction so basically the judge kind of in a way uh changed the rules right to allow specifically for media access what did that say to you i mean so what it said to me and to i think to a lot of us on in the in the sort of uh, the, the group that was challenging this was the same thing as it said every other time that that courts have told the RCMP that they need to not do that. Right. It's, 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 it's become sort of just a pattern that the RCMP oversteps excluding media or even arresting media in the Justin break case. Um, and, and then they get taken to court or they take someone to court and they lose and then they do it again the next time they did it in what's and they do it in Muskrat falls I mean, the, 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 and it's not just the RCMP, the police all across Canada do this. As, as uh, you were talking about earlier this week, the, the homeless encampment in Toronto was being, uh, when, when that was being dismantled, um, the police were excluding journalists then. And that, that happened in at least two different places. It's, it's just, it's a recurring pattern. The police are way overstepping on, on their uh, control of media access. So what it what it tells me is is that the is that the media have a really good case to fight, but that they keep having to fight it, and that's the really frustrating. Exactly, thing. you keep having to do it. Um, I'm I'm just grateful that you did. You know, I mean, it, it would be it would honestly be so easy, Jimmy. You know this. I'm not saying you would. But it'd be so easy for you and your team to be like, well, there's other stuff we can cover and we can talk about these other stories and we can easily publish a whole bunch of, you know, uh, court action. We got to pony up. We got to find a lawyer. We got to do go through the rigmarole. It's so important that you're doing it. And it's so important that you did do it. Was that for you? I mean, was that with regards to I don't know you super well personally with regards to your resolve? Were you like, oh, hell no. When you heard about this with Emily Vance? I mean, did you know that this is what you were going to do? Um, well, I mean, I should I should start by saying the the fees was well, that was covered by the Canadian Association of Journalists. I'm That's a board great. member there, but I didn't I didn't vote on any of this because I was involved on in other ways. Um, but yeah, I mean that that was CAJ got involved, which I was super grateful for. And yeah. Sean Hearn, as, as they mentioned, should. was he was yeah yeah I think I believe so. Um, but Sean Hearn was also pro bono. Nice. So like the as far as ponying up goes, it was actually a, a pretty easy decision to make. But um, for me, it's been, it's been this really frustrating summer and spring where I've wanted to be covering this. I think it's a super important issue. We're a, we're a local fo- focused publication and a lot of people obviously care about this from on both sides of, of this issue. People are really concerned about the, the livelihood of the loggers and people are really concerned about the old growth forest. So people do want and deserve good local coverage of this issue. Um, and so as a, as a, as an editor, I, I want to fulfill that, that, that need. Um, but it's so expensive. So when I, when I want to send someone out there, it costs me several hundred dollars each time, yeah. not, not even counting the, the person's own time. Yeah. Um, so I can't send them out there if I don't know that they're going to get something that would be really irresponsible. So 
when the when, when the police would give us false information or or you know often accidentally but they would they would tell us you know oh we're going to be enforcing the injunction here and then there would be no one there to meet them or um or they wouldn't tell us in time when they're doing something so we you know it's a two and a half hour drive out there often more depending on where you're going um so if 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 we miss that window, then, then we're, we're just not there. And I can't afford to send someone out there for two, three weeks at a time to just sort of be there all the time. So that became really, really frustrating for me. And so now this court injunction allows me to make that decision a bit more easily, you know, and kind of sleep better at night, knowing that if I send someone out there, they're probably going to get access. And at least they've got this court case to, to point to when the cops do try and get in their way. Jimmy, we're working on, um, Potentially, actually, right after you, we might be talking to this is kind of a, a, a fluid situation, maybe talking to somebody there at the blockade, somebody, one, one of the demonstrators. Um, I'm curious for your take on this. Just to, my, my understanding is that the Pachita First Nation is actually asking demonstrators to leave, right? Like they're participants in the logging. They're, they're, or they're benefactors, at least. There's a, there's a relationship there. There's a benefit to the First Nations community. And, I think it it throws a little um, it's an interesting note with regards to I think what people might assume is the case there right now may not be the actual case. Can you clarify for us? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a really, really interesting uh, sort of element of all this. Normally, I mean, I shouldn't say normally, but in a lot of a lot of cases that we've gotten used to in Canada, like Wet'suwet'en, for example, it's this case of a First Nation or, or supporters of a First Nation primarily on, on one side and then supporters of, of an industry on another side and often, you know, the Canadian government on that side. Um, Muskrat Falls would be a better example, actually, of that. So in this case, the, the, the Pachidat First Nation has an, a forestry agreement, a revenue sharing agreement with the, with the logging company and with the, with the, the provincial government. And so they are beneficiaries of that logging and there are people in the first nation that that work in the in the industry that work directly on that project or or that work in in mills you know that that are sort of benefiting and participating in in the old growth logging so this isn't them saying you you can't do this and the protesters on their side saying we're with you and the police then trying to enforce this injunction on behalf of the forestry company this is them, the, the, the First Nation, officially speaking, on the side of, of the police and the government and the uh, forestry company. And then the protesters are actually, in many of them, the blockaders, are acting against the wishes of the First Nation. That being said, it's even more complicated because there are uh, members of the First Nation, including uh, Elder Bill Jones, who are out there lending their support um, to the to the First Nation. In fact, Bill Jones is is often credited as one of the the leaders of the blockade. Um, certainly a moral leader, if if not uh, you know organizing. So, uh, for example, recently the, the some of the uh, blockaders dropped a bunch of trees. I think eighteen old, like young young trees across the across the road, and the Pachita First Nation was outraged, and the then the. Uh, police and a lot of sort of the media jumped on this as like, look, they're hypocrites, you know, they're, they're, they're cutting down trees themselves. Um, Bill Jones had said, you know, like, this is, 
I'm I, on on behalf of Pachita First Nation. I don't know if he has necessarily the the ability to do that, but certainly some see it as as he has the the authority to say you you are able to cut down these trees. And I should also say like those trees were those are young second growth trees. These are not old growth trees that they're dropping to stop old growth logging. Um, so I mean I don't know if I've done a good job of explaining how complicated this is, but it, it certainly is a lot more complicated than than um, than a, the, the the typical narrative we're used to. And there is one more complication, which is um, when Pachidat put out a statement that really took the air out of the tires of the protesters. I think this was back in June. Um, I, I filed an FOI with the provincial government to find um, what sort of involvement they had had in drafting that statement, because they they said, you know, they sort of stood behind the statement and said, we support their ability. We had nothing to do with the statement, but, you know, we, they speak for themselves. Um, so I filed an FOI and I got communications with the First Nation that proved that the, the, the provincial government had been uh, involved in drafting that statement at least a week ahead of its of its release. So they were sort of operating behind the scenes. I, I, I don't want to say pulling the strings. I don't know how how much sort of they were dictating or, or deciding what was going to go into it versus just giving feedback or or being in the loop. But they certainly weren't just like, oh, we are as surprised as you were to see this statement come out, you know, that which is kind of what the position they had taken, the, the, the government. All this stuff behind the scenes, hey, man, and the legal action and the freedom of information requests. And it's almost like you can't take anybody at their word anymore, Jimmy, <laughs> isn't it? Hey, man, keep up the amazing work at CapitalDaily.ca. That's where our audience members can can sign up to join your daily newsletter and, and read more. I mean, I could keep you here and ask you about your top story today. iPhones, iPads, toys and games still king with children and some adults. People can go on and read that themselves. Jimmy Thompson is the managing editor of Capital Daily, doing great work from uh, Canada's beautiful West Coast. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Thanks so much. Yeah, you got it. Bye. We're going to talk to Nikki Ford in just a second. Uh, my understanding is Nikki's pretty much like on the front line, right? Uh, it sounds like uh, we're, what we're experiencing, and this is fine. We'll, we'll just tell our audience what's going on. Sometimes when you want to bring somebody in live on Zoom from the middle of nowhere, uh, it's difficult. And so Samuel G. Brooks and Sarah Hoyles behind the scenes are working hard to try to get Nikki Ford online. And, and we're just experiencing some technical difficulties, which is totally fine because I'm not sure if you've heard, Sarah, but I'm actually okay at running my mouth for extended periods of oh, time. Is yes. That, is that so, a fact? Yes, that's a fact. I can come up with many things to think about and say. And uh, so if we need a little bit more time to get Nikki, we had Nikki and then the connection evaporated. Well, I mean, Jimmy talked about the fact that there's no cell service up there. And, exactly. And uh, Nikki is on the front line. She they're actually coming to us from uh, from the blockade. So. Okay. So if it works out, great. Yeah. And if not, no big deal. We can try again. I mean, We're, how cool is that if, if we can get him? I mean, it would be pretty sweet. Not going to lie. Uh <laughs> So make it happen. But we're working hard and, and controlling what we can, which is, a, you know, a one way street sometimes. So hopefully the universe smiles upon us and we can check in from the front line of that Ferry Creek blockade, at least one of them. Uh, in the meantime, let me remind you that the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park invite you this weekend to come grab a Kit Kat blizzard. As a matter of fact, they'd probably love for you to grab five or six of them. Bring the whole gaggle by. Hit the drive through Walk on in to the Dairy Queens in Nemeo, Palisades, Y Gardens, Baseline Road, Westmount, or Newcastle. 
The Kit Kat Blizzard is the one that has everybody talking right now because it has the chunks of the real Kit Kat candy bar. In my opinion, the best of the uh, mainstream chocolate bars. That is bold. It is, and I and and I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. <sighs> do you have a uh, do you have like a go to like right now? I'm not, I'm not talking. Don't say like. Oh, there's this like organic, like I know that there's chocolatiers that are like, you know what I mean? I'm not saying that, you know, Edmonton, you know. Th- you don't know me, Jespo. I know, I'm just you saying. You don't know me. I'm saying if you're in Friesen Brothers or if you're in a gas station oh, and, yeah. and you have like a dollar fifty, what's the chocolate bar you're buying? Coffee crisp. Co- oh, okay. Another great selection. See, that's when you say like Kit Kat, it has the wafer and so does the coffee crisp. So I feel like they're, they're, that's a tough, that's tough picking. I mean, coffee crisp is a great bar. I'm not here to crack on Coffee Crisp. What? No. No but. You know what really raised the game for me was the Kit Kat Chunky. When they introduced Kit Kat Chunky, that to me, I'm not going to lie, I had started to stray away. I had started to, after about seven years of eating Kit Kats, I had started to experience a bit of an itch. Then I had started exploring other candy bars. You didn't. It started first by just looking at them. And then I started picking them up in this store, and oh. and then from time to time, it, I actually started taking them home. And then Kit Kat Chunky came back and completely redeemed itself. And now the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are proud to present the Kit Kat Blizzard. It has, it's maybe a little bit, not redundant, excessive overkill. But I welcome every single second of it. The chocolatey topping on top of the blizzard. There's no such thing as redundancy when it comes to chocolate. Are you kidding me? I wonder me? what the longest ad read we've ever done in the history of Real Talk. This might be it. I think we are circling the dream. Can we, can we invoice Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park for this one? I think we might be able to. Let's also remind you that the team at Westworld Computers. I wonder what Daryl at Westworld Computers, what his go-to chocolate bar might be. I don't know. You could probably learn a lot about a person by their go-to chocolate bar. You're always going to get somebody out of left field that's like, Bounty. And you're like, what? Bounty? Bounty's great. Bounty's a great bar. Yeah. Like, I I mean, I'll take anything, really. Yeah. Are there you're any, on a chocolate bar? Are there any no-goes? Are you like, you see one, you're like, no thanks? Sam had to change the music. You, you know when ad reads are going for a long time when you hear new music. All the tracks are about three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask Daryl at Westworld what his go-to chocolate bar is. Well, you can re- you know, because you may find someone that says, you know what, I don't eat, I, I eat kale. I don't eat chocolate bars. And then you learn a little bit about that person, right? That's what the team at Westworld does. As a family-owned business for more than 40 years, they've been asking their customers questions more important than the types of chocolate bars they eat. I know because we are one of their customers. They ask you, what are you going to use your computer for? What sort of applications will you be running? What sort of horsepower do you need? They make sure that you get the equipment that you need, the hardware that you require to do the job and do it well, Westworld Computers, masters of both sales and service. You can find them online at westworld.ca. I'm going to roll in hot to this next interview. Are we ready to go, Sam? We're good to go, I believe. I uh, I think she's having, you know, she's in a remote location. Yeah. We had her. We lost her. We had her. We lost her. Then she froze. Then she froze. You know what? You know what? It's it's the universe telling. We're going to keep working at it. We're going to keep going. 
We do have another interview with Scott Walker coming up. Scott doesn't happen to be checked in and ready to go, is he? Is Scott ready to go? Uh, I've seen him logged in. I haven't prepped him yet. Okay. Why don't we get into Scott uh, right now? So why don't we? Can you make that happen, Sam? And if Nikki's ready to go, we got Ubaka Ogbogu coming up as well. I love shows like this. I know you do. Managed chaos. This must be exactly, exactly, your bike's hot, Sam. This might be exactly like what Laird Hamilton feels like as he rolls in. He gets towed into those big, huge waves, and nobody knows what's going to happen because this is what, you know, all these other podcasts, they they don't go live to tape. This is what this is called, right? We live stream. You can watch us live later in the day. The majority of our audience will catch this later in the day on the podcast, but we do it live, which I love the moving parts. I love the action. So hopefully we'll talk to Nikki Ford. I'm going to stop promoting it just in case we don't have her. But Scott, okay. she Okay. (laughs) You said you love it. You said you love it. I hope that the universe will smile upon us. Let's roll in hot before we lose her. Nikki Ford is checking in from the Fairy Creek blockades. They've been in place for more than a year. It's in the south part of Vancouver Island. Nikki, I have my fingers crossed. We're going to be able to keep this connection with you. Can you tell us right now, up to the minute, what's going on at the blockade? First of all, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. Uh, Paint a picture for us, if you would. Hi. um, It's very choppy, so um, delay. We'll try our best, I guess. Um, Yeah, things are good here. Um, We've had a very lessened um, presence from enforcement, which has been exciting. So our response to that is to basically dance party on the front lines. The last couple of days have been nothing but celebration and unity and connection and a lot of heart and a lot of awesomeness. And um, people are really fired up because it just means we can have better preparations and really support each other, you know, you know, take care of ourselves and regroup. So it's been a great week so far. Nikki, how long have you been there and why are you there? Um, I came here in early May. Um, I've been here off and on since then. I leave uh, here and there just for my own personal life and stuff because, you know, dropping your life and coming out here is a bit much. But um, I'm kind of dedicated to that now. And it's been a big passion project to be out here. Um, I came out here to defend ancient forests stop indigenous um genocide essentially through the um through the manipulation and the sort of enforcement of things you know related to environmental and um resourcing um and you know i'm here to stand in that because i i'm you know i'm technically i look like a settler i have indigenous blood within me but essentially i don't think that this is okay anymore and i'm willing to take a stand and to support the indigenous community no matter how long it takes and no matter what it takes. And so I'm here. I've actually decided to move closer to the blockades to essentially have my presence here more full time. So Mm. Nikki, I was just talking to Jimmy Thompson, uh, managing editor of capital daily, and he was giving his, us his or his perspective based on his team's good reporting on, on some of the issues at play there. One of the interesting ones, of course, is if I need to tell you is, is the, the Pachita first nation and the relationship there with, uh, what goes on with logging and uh, the obvious financial benefits. Now, my understanding is that there's a community member there from the first nation, by the name of Bill Jones, who's really been making significant contributions on the on the front lines of these blockades. But how would you process or to the rest of us, how would you describe the dynamic at play there, uh, the relationship of the logging industry and this First Nation? 
Yeah. So as far as the relationship, I don't know if the relationship is very positive at this time. I know we've had several aggressions and and we actually had an assault from a logger here on site. One of my closest friends actually was in a um, basically just what they call a pop up action near Honeymoon Bay. Um, and they were there. And essentially um, this logger had attacked a man because um, and it's sad because what happened actually was the logger told us that his daughter requires a very expensive form of medication. And so for him being there, it is his daughter's livelihood. And so for someone to stand in his way, it is like him defending his daughter. It's him defending his family. And so it's it's very strange dynamics because you have people on one side saying, you know, we need this for our families. We need this to, you know, exist, to, you know, visit our children, pay our bills. And then we have other people on the other side, you know, you know, like ourselves that are saying, you know, we understand and we want to have these conversations, but, you know, it takes those conversations to happen to essentially bridge that gap. And these conversations between loggers and, you know, our sort of team here just haven't been happening, though we are trying to really reinforce that that is important. Um, very similar to what happened at Blakewalk, you know, 20, 30 years ago, where, you know, they were the protesters talked to the loggers. We, they had similar um, problems. They had similar pain points and they came together to protect that forest because they knew that it was about the long-term plan for everyone. And so essentially we want that to happen, but you know, it's really hard when there's a lot of emotion, a lot of aggression and a lot of polarization, especially from the media right now. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. What do you mean? Sorry, it cut out. What was that? Uh, what, what do you mean when you talk about polarization and the role that the media is playing? Take us into that. Well, I mean, we've all noticed that there's a lot of things online um, that are not exactly true, like things about garbage being out here, um, you know, all sorts of things like people smoking cigarettes, smoking, you know, marijuana, drinking, you know, doing drugs, all this stuff has come out. And it's like, this is this is not what's going on here. You know, we haven't had a lot of media presence out here lately, and there, we're just seeing all of this coverage without any media presence being here, other than the media that comes through from us here. There's some independent media that... I'm hoping that that lag catches up so we can hear more. We're talking to Nikki Ford. If you're just tuning in right now, if you're streaming this live on the Mixler audio app, Nikki is uh, joining us from, from basically... Happening, where... Sorry, Nikki, go ahead. You dropped out there for just a moment, but but oh, yeah. you, no you cut out where yeah. you tell you basically what you're saying. And by the way, who cares if you're smoking cannabis? I don't understand why that's a story. But, uh, you know, you, yeah. you, you, you cut out right where you were telling us you feel like you're being unfairly portrayed. Uh, you're you're reading stories about yourselves and your fellow demonstrators written by reporters that as far as you can tell, aren't there. Is, is that accurate? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, yeah, exactly. So how, describe for us the resolve here. I mean, this is these blockades have been in place for more than a year. What has to happen for people to pack up their tents and go back home? Essentially, we need to have an agreement where this land is protected, where the loggers are not allowed to hit the Fairy Creek watershed with their trucks and their machines. Um, this is one of the this is the primary watershed in this area. Water to the entire Apache and Diddy Dat First Nation. If you destroy Well, we're obviously experiencing a bit of an interruption. Um, and uh, hey, listen, we're doing our best. I think it's cool that we've had Nikki on. 
if it if it improves, if quality comes back to us, we can keep the interview going. Um, if not, I mean, that's a really interesting point that she's making. And I don't have I mean, uh, you know, I, I can understand that for these demonstrators, you know, you're hearing things about, um, you know, Jimmy talked about them cutting down trees like younger trees to create these roadblocks or whatever the case may be. But this is how a lot of um, movements are either attempt. There are attempts made to discredit movements or movements are discredited. And in many cases, in some cases, justifiably, I mean, in, in some circumstances, you look at, you know, some demonstrations and you look at the swath of destruction when they leave and you go, you know, I mean, this is this is the, you know, a, a favored tactic of critics of a movement that will say some environmentalists, right? They love to post the photo of, of, of the, you know, the litter and the garbage that's left when a demonstration concludes or when it wraps up. And we've also seen examples of that happening where photos have been cherry picked and poached and they're actually inaccurate. It's fake news, so to speak, though. I despise the phrase um, that I was, I was really interested to hear her saying that, that they feel like that they're being unfairly portrayed and that there's sort of a divisive trend with regards to some of the media coverage that they're seeing. I, I really wonder about that. Like, I wonder, is that maybe a flag that if that's what they're being fed, then uh, like what media is being fed, then maybe they don't have much to go. Like the logging companies don't have much to go on. I yeah. wonder. It sounds like we got Nikki back. Nikki, are you with me? Can you hear me clearly? Yeah. Hey, first of all, let me just say thank you for sticking with us and trying to make this work. We're going to try to keep this conversation going because I'm, I'm really curious to know. I mean, you say you want to protect that watershed. Can you see this? I mean, are you seeing signs that are providing you some encouragement? Do you see any progress being made or are you still at, I can't help myself, still at loggerheads? Yeah. Um, is this better also for like, can you hear me? Better I can but hear not you. Seen me? Yeah. And you know what? That's totally fine. Let's treat it like talk radio. So yeah, we can okay. hear you loud and clear. So yeah, um, essentially what you were saying though, is that um, like, um, are you saying that like, because of sort of the, the um, polarization with the loggers and this media stuff, are you just, are you asking about, um, about I think we got to pull the pin on it. Yeah, Nikki, if you can hear me, I'm so sorry. I just it, it, it's cutting in and out. I really apologize for this. I'm grateful that we had her. I'm I'm grateful we were able to hear her voice and her perspective. Um, what we'll do is we'll reach out and maybe if she wants, you know, what we could even do is get her to like issue us a statement or maybe she could even send us a video which we could play because I'd really love to get some further clarification there on whether or not they're seeing progress here. I mean, I'm curious to know behind the scenes what does this actually look like? There are interactions. She she alluded to one what sounded like a bit of a troubling circumstance. Obviously, she alleged that there had been some sort of a confrontation yeah, an altercation. And um, and of course, you know, the understanding of the dynamics at play between loggers, people that are doing their jobs there and the First Nation, where there's clearly not consensus. Um, which would be the case with almost any community. Yeah. Not, not everybody feels the exact same way about everything. Newsflash. And then demonstrators. And of course, how about BC's provincial government? John Horgan has been taking lashings over this, right? A lot of people are saying that that his credibility on the environmental front is taking a real hit. And keep in mind the dynamic at play as well with regards to BC's legislature and the seats 
held by, for example, the Green Party. Mm -hmm. Uh, John Horgan's NDP is is not a majority government without support. So uh, there's a lot of angles on this and and we'll continue to stick on this story um, in days and uh, weeks to come. I just want to commend our team for for getting Nikki there. And and although it didn't work out necessarily 100 percent to be able to hear her voice and to be able to check in from the front line of the blockade is pretty sweet. That is so cool. Very real time. Very cool stuff in real time. The team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge acknowledge right now there's no hiding the fact that inventory is an issue if you're in the pickup market right now. That's because of a whole bunch of factors, including COVID-19 and the Suez Canal blockage and microchips and everything else. But the good news is if you're looking to get into a new truck, and you've got one that's gently pre-owned. Trade-in values are looking pretty good right now. The other bit of good news is that St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge share inventories. And so they've essentially got double the selection of anywhere else. You can check them out online under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. And keep in mind that Jeep Grand Wagoneer is coming out. This is Jeep's re-entry into the luxury SUV market. This one's going head-to-head against the Escalade and everything else. The Grand Wagoneer, you'll find it at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. A big shout-out to the team at Friesen Brothers, Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. It was so fun for us last week to partner with them on that Instagram giveaway, the barbecue giveaway, because we asked you to share with us your favorite item from Friesen Brothers to throw on the grill. It was a little bit, I mean, it was, it was tortuous. It, tortuous? That's a word, right? It, torturous. Tortuous. It was torture, is what it was. It was torture. There you go. Reading through this, the one that stuck out to me was chicken wings. It's a really, in, in my mind, people underestimate the punch power of chicken wings on the grill. You'll find Alberta's best chicken, pork, turkey, beef, and legumes at Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Our next guest, he and I have had a, an annual tradition for he'll know how many years, I think six maybe. I think it was six years ago that I first spoke with Scott Walker, um, who is uh, the founder of Tiaho, and we're going to learn more about that. You can check it out uh, at tiaho.org. Scott is, is the founder of an event that sees him scrambling to the tops of mountain peaks for 24 hours at a time to raise awareness about those who are living with bipolar disorder, including Scott himself, making his Real Talk debut this morning. My man, it is great to see your face. Welcome to the show. Well, likewise. Thanks, Ryan. It's uh, awesome being able to see you, and I greatly appreciate this opportunity. How many years has it been now, Scotty, that you've been doing this? We started in 2015, and when you were introducing me, I was attempting to remember when you and I first chatted, and I think... You and I first chatted in 2015. I think that, you're right. When we did the Four Peaks Banff event. Yeah. So you, so essentially, you've picked different. Uh, I mean, you've picked different destinations, but the theme, the common theme that has held true, is this 24-hour commitment where you basically go and go and go. You have people joining you along the way. Obviously, you have people funding this effort, and and and, and probably most importantly, you'll tell us you're driving conversation around living with bipolar disorder. I don't want to take for granted. I mean, there are going to be people that are going to be meeting you for the very first time on this podcast that didn't hear you on the radio show before. So why don't we look back? How did this all come about? What's the root of this? 
thanks for asking, Ryan. So the root of this was in 2014, I decided to do a 5K run and to do that as a fundraiser for International Bipolar Foundation. And uh, it's an organization that provides amazing free resources for people, family and friends living with bipolar disorder. And essentially they gave me a bright yellow shirt to wear during this 5K fundraising run. I joined an existing fundraising run in Calgary and that was the start of it. So for me, I decided to raise money for International Bipolar Foundation to start talking a little bit more about my bipolar journey publicly. Because up to that point, I had done a little bit of telling people about my journey. However, I was pretty pretty unconfident at that point in talking about it publicly. So that was the actual start. And then um, the following spring of 2015, one of my coworkers, uh, Masaki Yokoda, we were talking about upcoming hikes that we had planned to do for that summer. And he said to me, oh, have you ever thought about doing the Four Peaks? I'm like, Four Peaks, which ones? And he told me that a few rugby guys had done uh, four local mountains in one day. Um, Cascade, Rundle, Sulphur Tunnel. And as soon as he told me that, I thought, holy crap, I don't, I don't think I could do that. And he's like, come on, I think you could do this. And so he encouraged me and I said to him, well, let me think about it. And uh, in the span of a couple of days, I decided to do the Four Peaks and to do it as a fundraiser. So, and also as an awareness event for mental health. So 2015, that started with Four Peaks, and that was the Banff Four Peaks. And fortunately that year, uh, we were able to get a lot of media coverage. I actually had a live interview on CTV where I look like deer in the headlights. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was really the official start, I'll say, but it truly started in 2014. Well, you've done amazing advocacy along the way, and I wanted to make sure that our audience knew about what was going on this weekend. They can check out tiaho.org. That's T-I-A-H-O.org. And uh, you're going to be hiking Tunnel Mountain in Banff coming up this weekend for 24 hours straight. Scott, what's one thing when it comes to awareness and reducing stigma around bipolar disorder, what's one thing you want to reiterate to people today? Thanks for asking. I would say the the main thing to reiterate is to have more conversations around mental health. As as some of you know, with the Olympics going on right now, there's a few well-known athletes that have had, uh, we'll just say public statements around their mental health. And, you know, in my mind, I think, wow, if an Olympic athlete who has trained for decades of their life has those mental health issues, then, you know, I'll just say the vast majority I feel of our population has mental health issues at some point, especially in the last 16, 17 months with COVID. So for me, the having those conversations is huge, whether it's uh, ideally one-on-one with a, a spouse, a family member, a friend, could be in a support group online or in person and uh, just having those conversations going because I know a lot of men and I put both hands up um, tend to have what's called lone wolf syndrome and they think they can handle all of their life problems on their own, including their mental health. And uh, women in my experience are much better 
uh, talking about their challenges and problems with family, friends, and their spouse. And a lot of men, uh, like I say, myself included, even now at times, tend to be quiet and silent and isolate. And uh, so to really keep those conversations going is is critical. Well, and you're- for those of you who have someone with someone in your life with a mental health issue, if you haven't heard from them a while and your gut is telling you to reach out, just reach out to them. Even send them a quick text. Just say, hey, I'm thinking of you, um, that sort of thing. And uh, that, that for me is the most important is keeping that conversation going and that line of communication open. Scott, I'm really proud of you. Uh, you encourage me um, on an annual basis and uh, I wish you well this weekend. I want to again uh, direct our audience to tiaho.org, uh, T-I-A-H-O.org, where they can learn more about what you're doing. Scott is, uh, I mean, just an unbelievable advocate for discussion about mental health. Thanks for making time for us today. Well, my pleasure. Thanks again for this opportunity and uh, take care. You bet. Go get them this weekend. Um, Scott references that story. And I, I mean, Simone Biles, uh, I think it's you can just say she's the greatest gymnast in history. Right. I mean, I know Nadia Kamenich. I know some people will probably talk about her. And, and once I start talking about the world's greatest gymnast, I'm if you said to me, Ryan, name five gymnasts, I would go. Ah. You got two so far. Yeah, I got two. <laughs> I got two. But she withdrew from some of her competitions at the Tokyo Olympics. We're talking about the GOAT. We're talking about the greatest of all time. And uh, there's a great piece. uh, You can read it at BuzzFeedNews.com. I was reading it uh, just yesterday by Elamin Abdul-Mahmoud, who's just a a great uh, journalist and and a great opinion writer as well. Uh, uh, His take on why what Simone Biles did at the Olympics is revolutionary. It is. And how uh, her withdrawing from some of the events and talking about it as a health issue. Uh, is uh, demonstrates, he says, how much talking publicly about mental health has lost its stigma, which is really great. So, I mean, it's not great that she's had to withdraw from some events and she's experiencing these challenges. But the fact that she's like, hey, listen, like she she's she's not an elite performer. She is elite among elite performers. Right. Like she's she's kind of I mean, there, we don't have time to get into this because I know that Dr. Ubaka Obogu is going to join us in just a second here. But like she's basically too good for the field of competition. True. She does things that no one else can and they've actually tried to curtail. Yeah, they've tried to to dumb her down a bit. Yeah, because they they're like no you can't do that. That's not fair. It's like but I can physic like yeah. she can do it physically. It's like dulling down Connor McDavid's skates so the other hockey players can keep up with them. So they don't feel bad. So they don't you don't want them to feel bad. Don't want them to feel bad. That's the last thing you want to do. But to be that good, and it doesn't matter. It, I mean, people will write in right now and and would rightfully criticize me and say, "Why does it matter in a conversation about mental health? Why does it matter how good of a gymnast she is? It doesn't." But the fact of the matter is her position, um, where she is elevated, her celebrity, her status. There's this platform she has, right? And the influence that she has. And to come out and show such strength and such courage and such integrity and everything else. Mm -hmm. To say, you want to know what's going on? Here's what's going on. Think of how many people can be empowered, will be, are being empowered by what she's doing. I think also within like the, the wider scope is she's a survivor of sexual violence mm. after um, 
Nasser, the the medical Larry Nasser, yeah, yeah, from the Olympic American Olympic team. So she's carrying she carries so much and with so much grace. And I just to me, I I think that this is just another show of how she is the goat. Yeah. That she she is seeing a, she's looking at whole health, and whole health has physical implications and mental implications so it's about seeing it as whole health and i just i applaud her tiana on our live chat i love this comment says it's about time that speaking about mental health as your physical health is normalized on a global stage that's a great comment um i've said it on this show before talking to uh, friends of mine that are firefighters and they're they refer to and you hear it, it happens sometimes with language and language is so powerful and when you start referring to mental health challenges like PTSD, a diagnosis of PTSD as a mental health injury, all of a sudden people that are performers that show up and perform at their job, uh, whether they're an Olympic gymnast or whether they're uh, on an ambulance or whether they're, uh, you know, a, a court stenographer. I mean, think of the people, think of what court stenographers hear on a daily basis in like child sex abuse trials, for example. PTSD can impact anybody anywhere. When you start talking to performers in language and terms, they can understand like you are experiencing a mental health injury. It takes away a lot of the stigma. It's like blowing your knee out. You have experienced an injury. Now let's work on getting you healthy and they can understand it and they can start to process it and it removes the stigma and shows like this will continue to make a commitment to have these types of conversations. Ubaka Ogbogu in just a second wanted to remind you that if you swing on by Landscape Edmonton right now, you'll be able to check out some of the work that Eden Landscaping has done over the years. Different featured projects that show all kinds of different stuff, natural beauty or ultra modern. If stunning stonework is your thing, they do that too. The team at landscapeedmonton.ca, that's the team at Eden Landscaping, has been in business for more than 20 years, turning people's dreams into reality. It's not too late to get them working for you this summer right now. You can contact Mike and his team again under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com or go directly to landscapeedmonton.ca. We also wanted to remind you that there are $70. There is $70? There is $70 on the table. There is $70 on the table for anybody that goes to parkpower.ca right now and uses the promo code. I can tell you're thinking about this. I think it's because the $70 is a thing. Right? But there's if, 70 of them. But but if but if there were 70 audience members in our new Real Talk studio that I'm not going to talk about quite yet, if there were 70 people in our live audience, I would say there are 70 people. Yeah. But the $70 is a thing. So there is $70 up for grabs. I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. Cause right? It's, it's the prize. The prize, the prize is singular. The reward yeah. is one thing. Okay. And it's $70. Although, you know what? There's probably an English prop. Why don't we put Ubaka on? on <laughs> uh, we're going to put him on notice. We're going to ask him for his opinion on this. Sam's got his CP style, style book out. Book. <laughs> Did, were you able to determine in the CP style guide or the style book? In, in the 30 seconds that we've been doing this? No. No. But I'll I, look it up. I would have actually thought you were bluffing if you claimed that you had already found it. That thing is thicker than an encyclopedia. I saw somebody, you know, these like donate a book, take a book, leave a book. Did you see I the photo? Someone put an entire encyclopedia collection inside the little book library. Yeah. Absolutely hilarious. 
I used to go door to door selling those things, you know. Britannica? Well, study guides through the Southwestern Company based out of Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know why I'm giving him free advertising. It was literally the worst job I've ever had. But it taught me character. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to that's one way to characterize being reduced to tears every single day. Everybody Aww. feels sorry. Hey, I'll say this. Every time somebody comes and don't worry, Park Power, we'll get back to your ad read in just a second. Anytime somebody comes to the door, right? Not anytime, but most times when somebody comes to the door peddling something and you're kind of like, who does this anymore? I do have some, I have walked empathy? a mile and I have some empathy. I have walked miles in those shoes. It is not an easy job. So I hear them out for like 10 seconds and I, and I, and I typically say, you know, I'm not interested. They go, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I say, yeah, yeah. See you later. See you later. Park Power provides internet, electricity, and natural gas across the province of Alberta. And again, that promo code to save $70 off your first bill because there is $70 up for grabs right now. 2021-RealTalk at parkpower.ca. Why not take your business over to them today? I have no idea where this next interview is going to go. Basically, Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu is a good friend of this show. As a matter of fact, he was on like three or four days ago. And yesterday, when the Alberta government announced its free-for-all approach to the next stage of emerging from this pandemic, Ubaka reached out and said, can I basically, uh, paraphrasing, Ubaka, what did you say? I think you basically said, um, you know, the, the, the Coles notes was, can I come on your show and basically blow a gasket for an hour? That's basically yeah, what you... That's pretty much it. I, I just want to rant. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I... I don't have any science or law today. I just, that's okay. Just a good old rant. Just a good yeah. old rant. Sometimes it feels good to just get it off your chest. <laughs> so, so basically here's the deal. Uh, quarantine for close contacts shifts to recommended from mandatory, um, which means do whatever you want. Um, they will continue to notify all positive cases, but contact tracers will no longer be notifying anybody. That'll be again placed on the uh, the altar of personal responsibility um, and uh, basically asymptomatic testing no no, no longer recommended. Um, any masking orders are now uh, lifted and isolation. This is the one that is absolutely blowing my mind. Isolation following a positive COVID test no longer required over to you what the hell ryan right what the hell it's we're, we're the only jurisdiction right now in the world that has the ability to actually manage the pandemic using all the tools that the modern uh, uh society the modern society has to, to manage the pandemic that has decided to abandon all those tools this is completely unconscionable. I mean, I think it's at the level where the chief medical officer of health should face some kind of disciplinary action. And, and I know this is actually not legally possible. I know it's not legally possible for the college to, to prosecute her for things that she's doing in this position, but I wish it was possible. I wish there was some kind of direct action possible against that because this is completely nuts. It's, there's no way around this. You, what is happening here is not easing restrictions, which you know, we can argue about that. We can argue about, do we need restrictions here, restrictions there? We can also argue about, do we need vaccine passports or do we need to vaccinate people? What she and the nutters in power have done is basically the size in the middle of a pandemic, they're going to take away 
boots on the ground public health. The, so the, so the, the, the things that you have to do in a public health crisis, these are things you can't do away with. I, I don't think, I studied the, I studied the history of, of, of uh, pandemic events and history of policies that I used to manage them. Uh, that's what I did for my PhD. I don't think I've encountered an example, even going back to the period that I studied, the 19th century, I didn't encounter any example where a society that is not as sophisticated as ours is today said, we will no longer isolate persons who test positive for a disease that is killing people world over. It makes absolutely no sense. There's a, there's a possibility that everyone knows about. Everyone who has a brain knows this of a variant emerging that can evade the vaccines that we have presently. There's a possibility of persons who are immunocompromised getting hurt by those variants. There's a possibility of kids who haven't been vaccinated getting hurt with this policy. I just am beside myself. I've seen normally stoic people like my wife <laughs> break down and start discussing leaving the province. It makes absolutely no goddamn sense. It, it, there is no way to justify what the province has done. You can't remove public health measures in the middle of a pandemic. This is not about restrictions. This is not about do we, do we lock down some places or you know, do I allow people to go here or not go there? No, this is about removing boots on the ground, cornerstone public health, isolation, quarantine. You don't do that. As a matter of fact, even people who support easing restrictions should not celebrate this news. This is like saying, we're gonna find mice or rats in a restaurant and you know, and the droppings in your food and it's okay. We don't need public health. It makes no goddamn sense. Uh, and it's, it, oh, it's nuts. Uh, it's nuts is what it is. It's like asking, yeah, I mean, your, your whole thing about mice and rats, um, I, it's, uh, or if you want to throw in cockroaches or anything else, it would be like asking restaurateurs to rely on or asking the general public to trust restaurateurs relying on or voluntarily conducting their own health inspections because the worst, because Obaka, the worst offenders are going to be the ones that are causing the biggest problems, right? Like somebody, exactly. like there are going to be people out there, the people that are not going to get vaccinated, that are going to get sick, are also going to be the ones that think it's a joke and they think it's a flu and they're not particularly concerned about it themselves. And so they're going to actually laugh. They're going to make jokes. They're going to hear you and I talk and they're going to joke with their friends and they're and they are going to go out and about. And because we have been enjoying some eased restrictions and people are back in shopping malls and restaurants and churches and community halls and everywhere else. These people are going to be exposed because of inconsiderate boobs that are sick 
that are going to perpetuate the problem. This is the whole thing. I mean, this is the you remember when Jason Kenney in opposition used to talk about the ideological NDP. And even at the time, I would just burst out laughing when he would say it because there's nobody in Canada more handcuffed by and driven by ideology than Alberta's premier. Literally nobody in Canada is more ideologically driven than Jason Kenney. And his thing about personal responsibility, this bell that he rings, this whistle that he blows about personal personal responsibility this is the manifestation of that and it is going to cause big problems huge problems ryan you're exactly right now people who are not vaccinated yet and we know this is you know people in the sort of 20 to 29 age group uh 30 to 39 they're not there's no incentive to get vaccinated anymore they're not going to do it because the province has basically declared the pandemic over and that makes no sense to me uh, the, the, the province cannot take a defiant attitude against a disease. It makes no sense. It, it, uh, so people who are not vaccinated are not going to find any incentive to get vaccinated. Uh, but think about the, the huge implications of this. We are basically going to be treated as a pariah province. So even those people who keep saying there's no pandemic, we should move on, they don't, they don't recognize what this means for us. It's going to affect us all, whether you're on the side of people who say, like me, who say, let's do something about this pandemic to make it end, or people who think it's a joke. It's going to affect us all. I think every other province is well within their rights right now to find ways to bar Albertans from showing up in their provinces, unless fully vaccinated and with proof that they've been tested and they are negative for COVID. I think definitely countries should do that to Alberta and they will because what we're doing is basically using this province and when I say we, I mean those fuckers, what they're doing is using this province as a testing ground for some stupid notion around something that has killed millions around the world, millions, and has left people with chronic illnesses that are going to have to manage for the rest of their lives. And a disease that has so much uncertainty around it that is changing its nature all the time and for which we're lucky to have vaccines, but we don't know how long that vaccine protection lasts. We don't know how you know, the variants of this are going to manifest. And these idiots, including one who says she's a scientist and a doctor, they have turned our province into a testing ground for what if we somehow get out of it magically without any effects. It is so bizarre that at this point, I think people in this province should rise up. There should be a general strike. We should take direct action against the government. No government has a right. No government has a right to put its people in danger. That wasn't the mandate. They were not elected to do that. They don't have a right to do that. It's a violation of the Public Health Act, which contemplates that they will do something, not that they will do nothing. I think people are well within their rights to rise up against this government and demand that the government do something to not turn us into a pariah in the world. It is shameful. It is disgusting. It is the worst thing I have seen in public health practice 
in contemporary times. Even in ancient times, it, going far back, you don't see a society that says there's disease, let's not do isolation. It makes no bloody sense. And to compare to the flu, is ridiculous. You know, yesterday when I heard that from Henshaw, I was apoplectic. This is not the flu, and she knows that. It, I mean, ugh. And you know what, man? I mean, I hate to... <laughs> you already know, Ubaka, what... You know, I, I, I spoke earlier about my feelings about the premier's advisors and communications staffers. And I mean, it's just, they've taken all they've convention. Taken all. Um, they've taken everything that has typically been understood or implied about working for the premier uh, of a province uh, in the country. And they've, they've disgraced the offices. They, you talk to anybody. I mean, I've, I've worked, I've covered the careers of seven Alberta premiers and there has never been an office holder like this where the the trolling and the the sort of bombastic prickish nature just shines through where they gleefully confront people and push buttons and i mean it's just like they're 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 petty and shallow and negligent and deplorable and i've got many many words for the for the Matt Wolfs and the Brock Harrisons and for everybody else. But you know what they're going to say about this because you know they're going to hear this interview. What's up, fellas? You know they're going to hear this, Ubaka, and you know what they're going to say about you and me? They're going to say some people just never want this pandemic to end, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. That's just nonsensical. Of course, we want the pandemic to end. Of course, we want it to end because we are saying take action to make it end. Do the right thing to make it end. They are the ones who don't want it to end. They are the ones who have allowed wave after wave after wave. It's not as if when we said do something at the second wave, they did those things and we're now at the fourth wave. They didn't. They didn't listen to the second wave, so we have a third wave. They didn't listen at the third wave. I remember just a few weeks ago, they were celebrating the end of the pandemic. The, the fucking premier said the pandemic was over. And, and because he wanted to have a, a, some kind of cosplay party in Calgary. And after that, after that, we now have a fourth wave. Cases are rising. Look, Ryan, I have lived under successive military dictatorships. I grew up under that. When you're living in a military dictatorship, at least you expect that these are people who have thrown out the law. That's the first thing they do when they come into power. They go, the law no longer exists. My word is all that you have, right? And then they go and do all kinds of nonsense. And I have seen them make decisions that affect people at a very basic level, at a community level. You know, I, you know I, I can remember a time when they made my grandmother, who's very old, jump into a gutter and start cleaning out the gutter, uh, you know, with a soldier standing there watching over her, right? And these are the kinds of feelings that these policies are invoking in me. It's invoking in me a feeling of helplessness, a feeling that it doesn't matter what I think as a citizen. And it doesn't matter how much I want to protect my children. I have no control over that. I basically cannot decide as a parent right now what to do when September rolls around. I feel like there's a soldier standing in front of my house with a gun and I'm jumping into a gutter of hopelessness. That's how I feel. I don't know whether to send them back. They're not vaccinated. If somebody in their class gets sick, there's no way we're going to know. There's... Positive cases don't have to isolate. 
we're not going to know who's sick or who's not sick. Ubaka, their teacher. I'm not saying that the teacher would, but your kid's teacher could be sick and show up for work. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying. You know what? Right now, there's debate in in, in corners. I'm getting, I'm getting, you know, text messages. I'm getting DMs for people saying, do I go into work? Would it be okay to go into work? Look, there are people who have to work, who don't even have the choice of making that decision. This is unconscionable. It's just wicked. It's wickedness at this point by an incompetent premier and a cabal of idiots who have decided for whatever reason that this province is theirs. It is not theirs. It is the people's. It's the province for Albertans. And they've been given a mandate that are not taken seriously. At a minimum, they have to have public measures, public health measures in place to manage a disease outbreak. To abandon those is really putting a gun to our heads. And that I find to be a complete abdication of legal responsibility and political morality. It is deeply, deeply troubling, you know, and this is not even about the election years off from now. This is about today and now and about a province that decided to strike out from something that the rest of the world knows is real. And I decided to do that and put millions of people in danger. Now, I know people might say, oh, it's just there's a population of people who have not been vaccinated. No, no, no. We are cooking a variant in Alberta. That's what we're doing. We're cooking one. And when we're done cooking it and it comes out, we don't know what it's going to manifest. And we can't we can be blasé about that because we've seen variants emerge when the pandemic runs rampant. But right now, people are getting hurt. I, 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 I worry about the kind of society where, that we are, where we don't actually think about the persons who can't help themselves. 12-year-olds and, and younger than 12-year-olds, people who you know, are immunocompromised, people who have long COVID, you know, people who right now need us to have policies in place that protect them. And these fuckers are not doing that. It is a sad day for the province. Everyone should be angry. Everyone ought to demand that the government do something. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I've kind of run out of things to say. I mean, I, this guy, man, this premier. I mean, it's no secret how I feel about this premier. Uh, but you know, I, I used to be able to say this. I mean, this is where it all started. You know, this this whole thing, my journey, my public journey with Jason Kenny, that ultimately led to me being fired and everything else. And everybody knows the story was a conversation, I think it was April 4th of 2019 with Charles Adler. It was an impromptu conversation. We didn't plan very much. And um, I, I, he asked me to do it on the last minute, a show on Charles Adler tonight. I just put my son to bed. I literally scribbled on a napkin. I just wrote down things about Jason Kenny. This was before the election that I didn't, why I didn't trust him. And I was like, look who's donating to his campaign. Look at his track record. Look at his history. Look who he fraternizes with. Look at who he supports. And these are only the things we know about, Right. And so I went on and we did about 15 minutes and I just went, he's beholden to these people and these people and these people. And he's going to do this and this and this. And you watch. And he has done all of them. And it's proven to be true. And the guy's so, so, so petty and so malicious that, you know, he gets me not only fired, but he gets all of my content from that radio station wiped. So it's not even on the record anymore. So here I am with a new megaphone premier and we're (laughs) going to keep talking about this because he has shattered 
the floor where I thought he would bottom out, which was already really bad news for Alberta. He has he right. has he has dug deeper and deeper and deeper to the point now where Ubaka, I don't have the words anymore because just when you thought, well, at least he's not going to do something stupid like allow anti-vaxxers and covid deniers to get sick and continue about their everyday business without isolating. He does it. Yeah. And here's the thing. We already know about him. We know the evil he's capable of. We know what informs his philosophies, and quite frankly, his dictatorial thirst for controlling everything in a way that only works for what he's interested in. We know that about that already. But how about the people who he surrounded himself with? When are we going to have someone step forward, especially the person who is the chief medical officer of health? who actually has a huge mandate, a statutory mandate, a mandate that we've talked about. I've talked about it on your show before. We've had these conversations. You know, last year I was on the show wondering about how she's not taking this job as seriously as she should and how she ought to resign. How does she actually stand by and endorse these decisions? How is she the voice of these decisions? How is a public health expert saying that in the middle of a pandemic, we're not going to have basic public health measures? It is people like her that I actually want to address today. People who should find a conscience when it's needed to save a society from people like Kenny. It is people like her who ought to be brave and to step forward even at personal cost and at professional cost and say enough is enough. Where are those people? What is she doing? How is she saying? How can somebody who's a public health expert mention the words, if you are positive for COVID, you don't need to isolate? How does a person say that if you're a public health expert? It makes no sense. And, and look, I knew sometime last year that she was not somebody who was right for the job. I think it's become very clear to everyone now, even her supporters, how dangerous she is as a person and how dangerous she is in that role. And I think people ought to write to her and say, look, get the hell out of that position. We don't even care if they put a puppet in there. But you've done enough. You have done enough to destroy faith. There are people who are lining up to go study public health uh, and who want to be, you know, in this role in the future. She's not setting a good example for anybody here. The whole deck needs to be cleared. This is just ridiculous, Ryan. You know, uh, and not just Kenny, everyone, the health minister, you know, members of Kenny's cabinet, MLAs, what the hell are they doing? There's this kind of I mean, I, I don't even know if it's lo- it's not loyalty to the premier uh, because we have little songbirds that sing to us, Ubaka, from within the caucus. I would never name them and I never will. Um, it's it's not loyalty. It's fear. And uh, at some point, these MLAs and even some of these ministers are going to have to walk away because you're not even talking about tarnishing your legacy. I mean, it's much more serious than that. Back on April 5th of 2021, 
I tweeted, it's time for the chief medical officer of health. It's time for Dr. Dina Hinshaw to either tell Albertans where this COVID outbreak is. You remember this story, Ubaka? This was one where yeah. they were like, uh, there's a there's a major outbreak linked to a large employer with multiple yeah. sites. They wouldn't say who it was. <laughs> they wouldn't talk about the community. They're like, there's a big outbreak in multiple sites across Western Canada. They wouldn't say what communities were affected. So I, I was, I remember I was just uh, like, so I put it out there and I said, it's time for her to either tell us where the outbreak is or resign if she can't. And I said, I have no doubt there's political interference all over this file, but this is absolutely preposterous. And you know what? I mean, a lot of people agreed for sure. Um, you know, about 400 people retweeted it. You know, when you get about 2000 people liking a tweet, you can say, I think that there's some consensus here. I think that I, I don't think I'm standing alone on an island here. But you know what? A whole bunch of doctors reached out to me and said, Jespo, respectfully, you have no idea what goes on. You have no idea what's happening behind the scenes. Dr. James Talbot came on the show. Hey, hang on. He Talbot came on the show, former chief medical officer of health. And he said, Ryan, she's doing a hell of a job. He said, nobody understands the dynamics at play. Nobody can understand what it's probably like to work with Jason Kenny. It's like the long leash we had to give Christia Freeland renegotiating NAFTA with Donald Trump. You have to remember who they're dealing with. A madman. So we don't know what it's like for Dr. Dina Hinshaw working with Donald Trump. But here you are again calling for essentially for her resignation. Right. And 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 I want to ask you if you think I mean, whether or not you would have supported what I said back in April of 2021 uh, versus now, if you think that there's a difference between that position she took there prompting my tweet then and the position she's taking now. No, it's I mean, it's all been the same. You recall that last year. When that uh, whole thing about whistleblowing, you know, when I was on your show talking about whistleblowing, when, you know, there was a leak that suggested that she was being controlled by by the premier and his cabal. You remember we had this conversation and, I, and I'm tired of this narrative about how she's this helpless person in this position being controlled by Kenny and she's our last hope, uh, you know, for 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 to be safe from Kenny. And if she's not there, you know, something worse is going to happen. Let me make this very clear. I think Dr. Dina Hinshaw, by now, and probably earlier, ought to know that she has now started to harm the province's health. There's nothing that justifies that remaining in that position, not even protecting, protecting Albertans from Kenny, right? And I think she's actually got to the point where I don't even understand what her motives can possibly be, but I can say that I don't care. I don't care about her motives. If as a parent, I'm gonna to have to send my child back to school in September where there are no measures in place for isolation of positive cases of COVID or for quarantine. I don't care what her motives are if, if there's no uh, symptomatic testing of persons who are having symptoms, except those symptoms are severe, essentially except they're hospitalized. I don't care what her motives are. I don't care if she's, you know, Kenny's buddy or not. I don't care if she's fighting behind the scenes or not. I just care that she's part of a set of decisions that are completely nonsensical. A set of decisions that no scientist, doctor, or public health expert can in good faith say are justifiable in the context of a pandemic. And I think that she may have started from somewhere where she's like, what the fuck is going on here with these people that I'm working with? to a point where she either has uh, Stockholm syndrome <laughs> of some weird kind, or 
she's actually complicit in these decisions. But who cares? What I care is that she's the face of this nonsense. You know, if somebody, if Kenny said to me, listen, Obaka, I'm going to put you out there to go announce this political decision I've made to fuck a province over. I'll be like, fuck you, Kenny. I'm out. I am not going to do that. You go do it yourself. You do it or send Chandra or one of your errand boys to go do it. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go out there and risk my credibility and announce that positive cases of a disease that has caused a global pandemic that has the possibility of mutating do not need to isolate. I wouldn't do that. That is like asking me to stick a finger in my fucking eye and I'm not going to do that. That's what you ought to say. And so the fact that she didn't do that, the fact that she actually stood in front of the cameras and announced that tells me that I don't have to give. I'm sorry for all the swearing. Fuck, f- go on, buddy. I'm Sometimes, you know what? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I can understand that some people may not have an appetite for all the cursing, but at some point, you got to say, what the fuck? Like, and, and, and by the way, I'll double down on the fuck you, Kenny, because I'll tell you right now that there are people across this country. This guy has 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 damaged the reputation of this province more than anybody in the history of this province. Right. Like I actually I just and this actually feels good, by the way, this feels really cathartic because like typically I'll say, like, what are your thoughts on how the premier's performing? Every once in a while, it looks good to <laughs> look in the lens and tell him to go fuck himself. But I'll tell you this. I can't wait till the guy is gone because I'm just embarrassed about this right now. But more than the embarrassment and more than the fury, I'm concerned. I'm worried about people because Guys like you and I and people that are tuned into this and the thousands that will listen to this podcast later today, Ubaka, actually care about people and they actually worry about the impact of decisions like this. And I know for a fact that this government is not driven by those same factors. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, I think Albertans on some level understand the need to protect their neighbors. You know, we have we always have a fringe minority who will say, you know, we don't care about the pandemic. We think we should go on living our lives. But look, 70% of those who are eligible or so turned out and got vaccinated, you know, and about 60, 60% of those people are out now, I don't know what latest stats are, uh, went back again and got double vaccinated uh, and got their full dose for the sake of the community. That's a majority of people at least saying, look, we care about our community and we'll do what it takes. Whenever I go out, I see people still masking, right? Uh, and I, I think it's important to remember that. It's important to remember that at the end of the day, we've been abandoned by the government, but we can't let it disease run rampant. We, we have to think about who's next to us and what they are going through. Uh, you know, who can't leave their house right now out of worry of getting COVID, people who have long COVID uh, and people who worry about their kids getting long COVID, people whose kids are immunocompromised, you know, people who want to you know, travel. Maybe you haven't seen your relatives somewhere in, in two years and you want to go. And then somebody says, well, where are you from? Uh, Alberta. Oh, no, sorry, we're not letting you in. Uh, you know, things like that. Uh, and I think we have a responsibility as good citizens to try and do something about that. But here is where it breaks down. There's so much a citizen can do. Ryan, between you and I, we can have all the good intentions in this world. We can decide we want to change, we want to solve climate change. So I'm going to, you know, design my house to be the most energy efficient. I, I'm going to, you know, do everything I can to make my life 
not to, to, to reduce my impact on the environment uh, and not contribute to climate change. Uh, but at the end of the day, if there's no collective purpose and collective will, and some institution that is responsible for managing that, there's only so much we can do as persons. And people will tire out when there's no sense that what I'm doing is something my neighbor is doing, right? Or it will be ineffective because it doesn't matter how much I mask and how much I take precautions. If there's a positive case walking around in my coffee shop uh, and there's somebody uh, and there's a variant that comes into play and you know affects me, or if, even as somebody who has been vaccinated, I get COVID, I don't know what is gonna manifest out of it. It doesn't provide a 100% protection, right? So, so in that kind of situation, that's when you need a government to step up. And look, we've had debates. We've had all kinds of debates about the level of that intervention from government. There have been countries that have said, as governments, you know, we're here for a purpose and we're going to take, we're going to, we're going to go for COVID zero. And we've debated that. There are people, the governments that have said, we're not going to go that far. But no government except ours has said, we're going to take public health measures and we're gonna throw them out the window. That's what's messed up about the situation we're in. No government has done that. Like, can you even, and, and this is, you know, this is speculation. We're ch- I, I, by the way, I, I just love, inter- I love conversations like this. Like, we're, we're just, the, you know what I mean? Uh, this is just, this is real talk. And so you're probably going to say, because you're an academic and, you, you know, PhD and all this <laughs> kind of stuff, you're going to say, well, Ryan, I don't know, because I'd have to speculate. But I want to, like, why? Do, <laughs> no, why? it's real talk. I because, agree. you know, because, you know, this is Jason Kenney, right? This is not Dina Hinshaw's idea. I'm not absolving her of responsibility. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I agree with you to step up on a podium, whether she likes it or not, she's tied to this. Um, but this is Jason Kenney and he's calling the shots and that's how he runs his government. And it's from the school of Stephen Harper. And if you don't comply, you're out. And we've seen evidence of it all over the place. What's the motivation for this? Like you got to there's there's got to be something right. So people are going to sniff around. People are going to who benefits from this. People are going to start to try to figure it out. But why do you think he's doing this? So so I have two theories on this. The, the first is actually one that if anyone anyone who knows Kenny will probably agree with, which is that uh, Kenny doesn't like being wrong. Uh, He's really good at it, though. Yeah, he's he's wrong all the time. But uh, the worst thing that can happen to him is for him to admit he's wrong. Anybody who has watched his government in the past, you know, two or so years knows this. You know, he will double down on anything. He he just can't admit he's wrong. Um, You know, they they knew they were gambling with Stampede. And and now that we're seeing cases rise, uh, you know, I think the only way he can actually save face is to hide the numbers. Uh, and if we're not testing, if we're not monitoring, if we're not doing public health anymore, you know, we're not going to know what the numbers are. Uh, and so we're left without information. So I think it's just classic, you know, uh, it's just classic sort of narcissism mixed up with like megalomania, mixed up with like madness. It's just, he it, it wants to hide the numbers. And, and in hiding the numbers, we're not going to know what's going on. And so we're not going to have something to blame him for in terms of, of a fourth wave. He could, of course, if he's a good leader, come out and say it was a gamble that didn't pay off. And now with cases rising, what am I talking about? He's never going to say that. Let me not waste your time, Ryan. The second thing, the second theory I have on this 
is that this has become for him sort of the last stand, the last gamble is going to make because of like a Hail Mary of sorts. Uh, and, and I think for him in doubling down, what he's thinking is I will stake some part of my political reputation on this, that the only, th- the worst we're ever going to see is some hospitalization. He doesn't really care about people. So he doesn't, you know, maybe a few deaths. He's happy with that. Um, and, you know, we're going to out-vaccinate the pandemic. And somehow, even though I have been wrong four times, I will at some point maybe win this one. And if I win this one, then I can say to people, forget the four waves. I knew all along that I was the best at managing the pandemic. It is the most insane thing a person can think. And maybe I'm insane to propose it as a theory, but I suspect I'm right in this. I suspect we're dealing with a deeply maniacal, maniacal leader who is thinking, if I go out this way, it's, it's this or, you know, it's either way. <laughs> it either works or it doesn't work. And, he, and I think he truly believes, he truly believes that we've reached the stage of the pandemic where it's no longer a pandemic. That is where he needs Hinshaw to give him a slap like wake him up with a slap and say, what the hell? We're still in a pandemic. Everyone else knows we're in a pandemic. This nonsense about the disease being endemic, in any event, even if it was endemic to Alberta. So what? You abandon public health? Even if we're the only ones having some version of Alberta COVID that no one else has, you abandon that? But I think this, this person, Kenny, has decided this to me. But he's done this gamble before. He's done it many times before, right? You remember that time he gambled in the second wave as well. He gambled with the third wave and he gambled with the oh, fourth he gamb- wave. He gambled on Keystone XL. He's gambled on a whole yeah. bunch of things, Ubaka. Yeah, and, and he's thinking, you know, that maybe that's what defines his, his, uh, his uh, premiership. He's a gambler. Mm-hmm. And he gambles for political success. Uh, and he did gamble with uniting the, 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 the conservatives in the province you know, getting a, a truck and and pose as if he's a, a real Albertan, uh, and and he gambled on that and he succeeded. So it's got into his head that that is the strategy for success. So he keeps running that that same gambit all the time, and and we are left helpless, looking at him, experiment with this. And so those are my two theories, other than, you know, to say that he's also somebody who um, is deeply ignorant of any way to actually make a situation better. He simply just lacks insight into good reason, into rationality, into science, into community well-being, into empathy. He's just so deeply barren of anything that defines a good leader. And so we're dealing with someone who is not able to connect to any of these things, which is why he keeps failing, but then celebrates those failures as if they're successes. And I'm, and I'm, I'm troubled that a province that I chose to call home 
saw this as our best option for leadership. It is really is the deeply telling to me that we saw this as our best option for leadership. A two-year-old child can lead better than this man. And he surrounded himself with like psychophants and people who are too cowardly because of personal gain to tell him to fuck off. But that's what he needs to do. He needs to fuck off and let us get our problems back. You should see our live chat right now. People are all kinds of fired up. But you know what? I mean, honestly, people are dismayed. That's what it is. Because people love this place. And there's, uh, there's an individual right now calling the shots with access to the purse strings. The word that you used, he's barren of these leadership qualities. Is such a, he, he's devoid of anything that would provide someone the intelligence, the intuition, and the ability to execute sound policy. I mean, you talk about, we describe politicians as those in public service, right? This guy doesn't know the first thing about public service, right? This guy knows about helping his donors and his friends. This guy understands benefiting at the cost. He understands about stepping on people to get a better view. And I wonder, I mean, I, Obak, I've wondered many times, is this the moment that Albertans are finally going to push back. I'm not talking about getting angry on Twitter. I'm not talking about some hashtag. I'm talking about people saying it's time to get the fuck out of Dodge, dude. It's time to go. Yeah, I mean, uh, my, my, my wife and I talked about that yesterday. You know, I think many families are having this conversation about about where is the future of this? I mean, how do you how do you live in a place where? You know, our common our common destiny is in the hands of someone who doesn't understand the weight of that responsibility. But we can't cut and run from this fight because, you know, look, I have means. You know, I, I as I've said to you before in this show, I'm always like a thousand dollars here and there between a bad government and a good government. I, you know, I, I have means. I worry about people who don't, who are on the margins, who, who can't actually avoid the effects of these bad decisions. And there has to be, and they don't have a voice. So they, have, they, have, they, they can't come on the Ryan Jesperson show, right? <laughs> you know, so we have to stay and keep talking about these issues. And, you know, look, I'm starting to calm down a little bit because I've got it all out of my system. But at the end of the day, I know there are people who disagree with me who probably think he's doing a good job. Mm. But Those I, people I are idiots. Well, I challenge them to point to one success that is had in solving any of our collective problems, whether it's the economy, you know, whether it's jobs, whether it's managing the pandemic. And I think at some point people have to wake up and ask ourselves, is the best we can do the person who some people think is getting an F or who we kind of know if we really stop to think about it? that at best, it's a D minus. Is that the best we can do? This is a province that has A plus people with A plus resources and A plus qualities. And we've let ourselves into the hands of someone who cannot even deliver just the basic things we need to manage society. And I'm saying this to, to, to those your listeners who actually think 
we've gone too far with COVID. I'm saying think about someone being positive of COVID and not being asked to stay away from the rest of us. Because that person is also an incubator for a form of the disease that we may not have. Think about the first wave, the time when we had no vaccines and how this was killing your grandparents. Think about a form of disease emerging that does that. Think about the kids, right? This is the first time in my life where I've seen such complete and utter disregard for the welfare of children. Normally we get very fired up when it comes to children. So much utter disregard from the government for the lives of children and from some of the citizens who have stopped thinking about what it means to live in a society together. No society succeeds when we all go it alone. And I'm saying we can debate some of these big ticket items, mandatory vaccination, vaccine passports, but we can't debate that somebody who has an infectious disease that's communicable to others should stay away from other people. If you go back to the 19th century, 18th century, even they did that. Even they said, gee, you have a disease. You should probably stay away from others. To have this brought back by a province is one of the shittiest hits I've ever seen uh, in my life and in the uh, government attempts. It's, it's not, I mean, I don't even know of any modern government that has, has ever done that. Uh, and so I think this is time for people, even people who disagree with me, to think about that at a very basic level, we have a government that doesn't even care for common sense. And we all need to unite, no matter what our differences are, and put a stop to that. Um, because it's not gonna, it, it's not gonna affect, you know, I, I can stay in my house and not go anywhere. You know, and even if I'm forced to go back to work, I can actually protest that. I can say it's not safe conditions for me. But there are people who don't have that option. And you know, we've seen these outbreaks in places where people don't have the ability to control their destiny. They walk around the clock. They have to go in. They do manual labor. They have to be there. They are in close contact with one another. You know, now, presumably, they can get vaccinated and they don't have to worry. But we're, only, we're thinking about the situation where you know, they also have poor access to vaccines. But we think of a situation where if the disease were to change its nature and come into these communities, the kinds of impact it will have. And we're forgetting, as I said before, that a huge segment of our population, children, are not vaccinated yet. I know people are going to say it doesn't affect children much. But again, you know, I don't want to, you know, that's not Hang on a second. Though, Hang right? on a second. Hang on a second. This just came in live right now. Okay, a real talker by the name of Kerry just sent me this live. Look at this report from CBS News. Uh, th- this was just tweeted a couple hours ago. School-age children in the state of Louisiana now make up the third largest number of new COVID infections in the state. This Delta variant, says this expert, changes the game. Children are more ill. They require higher levels of care. And sadly, I think we will see more deaths in the coming weeks. That's a CBS News story out of Louisiana. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, let's even imagine it wasn't that, you know, because these things you get into all these factual debates. I don't like getting into factual debates with people. We can't be debating reality. That's exactly true, what that report said. But even if it wasn't, one child, one child is one too many. One child who suffers from COVID is one child too many. And if that child is suffering because the government and the chief medical officer of health have decided 
that they will not put measures in place to protect that child. That's an abdication of responsibility. Nobody, not one person, should have to suffer from a disease in 2021 that can be managed, that can be reduced to zero levels by good governance. It's not as if I'm making this up. It has happened in places in the world, right? No person should have to suffer. And, and so you see, look, there's so much, as you know, there's so many angles we can take this, but fundamentally we're dealing with a government that has lost the will to govern and that has lost the ability to rationally make decisions about good governance. And within that government, we have people who obviously are not gonna step away because their destinies are selfishly tied to that purpose. But we also have people who can say to the premier, I'm gonna tell Albertans what's really going on here. This is my last stand and those people need to step up. And if they're not stepping up, we should step up and challenge the government. We should step up and with heaving hearts, say to them, you can't leave us at the mercy of a disease that you have resources that we've given to you to control. You have to use those resources. You, I mean, what's more important right now? What's more important to Alberta than stopping a disease so it can go back to our lives? What are the companies that rely on workers doing? You know, what do they want to happen for their workers to come back into a place where a disease is? I mean, what to, for me to leave my child at home and go work for the university? You know, because I'm, I'm worried my child is going to get sick. And then when I get there, I'm not protected. No public health measures in place. What do they expect from me as a person? And so I think we need to start having these discussions about how we're going to challenge this government and somehow kick it back into gear so it can start to actually do the basic things to protect us. Dr. Hakeek Varani has just tweeted, if it makes you feel any better, he said this uh, yesterday afternoon, as a matter of fact, after the announcement, if it makes you feel any better, he says, I spent five years in a public health residency and 15 more so far as a public health specialist. And I, too, have no idea what the hell some public health leaders are thinking that from Dr. Hakeek Varani. Uh, I mean, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Like, there's nobody, anybody who's willing to come on your show or on any show and justify Dr. Hinshaw endorsing this. Let's do it. Like I said, this is not about restrictions. We're not debating whether we should have vaccine passports or not. This is about boots on the ground, basic public health measures. You don't, when this is in the community, remove those very basic public health measures. You don't say people who are symptomatic shouldn't test. You don't say people shouldn't isolate if they're positive. You don't say people shouldn't quarantine if they are close contacts of a person who's positive. You don't let a disease have its will and run through a society that has the ability to actually stop it. Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu, uh, I appreciate your candor I appreciate the real talk. I, I feel your disbelief, your anger. I share it. Uh, I'm dismayed. I'm concerned. I've been sort of at a simmering level of fury for a couple of years right now, but it, it's hitting a point that I haven't felt. And I know I'm not alone on this. 
we'll continue these conversations. Uh, I suspect that a lot of people are going to be talking about this one. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ryan, for the opportunity. And, you know, um, sorry again to all your listeners for all the swearing, but, hey, but yeah, I've just about reached the point where I can't be cordial about this anymore. I, I saw a comment on our live chat. Someone said F-bombs are the least of our worries right now. So thanks for this. We'll talk again soon. That's thanks, Dr. Ryan. Ubaka Ogbogu. We're going to wrap. Uh, we're well into overtime. I want to thank everybody that stuck around. I want to thank everybody that joined us for that conversation. Now the work begins. If you liked what you heard, by the way, smash that like button, share this. Sarah's going to be tweeting out clips along with a link to the full interview from our Real Talk RJ account. Retweet it. Tell people they have to listen to it and they got to take action. Enough. Enough is enough. I'm going to start saying dumb shit like take Alberta back and all those kind of dog whistle things that people like Jason Kenny say, but... You know what I'm talking about. Enough is enough. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about the health impacts of wildfire smoke, and our roundtable will focus on indigenous artifacts in museums. Where do they belong? Where should they wind up? That's coming up on tomorrow's show, and we'll talk to you then.